0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of national review. You can find our Twitter feed at Political underscore beats. We invite you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher tune in or right there at nationalreview.com click on the podcast tab you'll find us and all of our friends all of our friendly national review podcasts right there listen enjoy share and please leave reviews for political beats my name is scott bertram you can find me on twitter at scott bertram my tag team partner standing by as always jeff blair
1: jeff how you doing well i'm in love with rock and roll whoa I'm in love with getting stoned. Whoa. I'm in love with Jannie Jones, but I'll have to tell you, I'm not always certain that I like my boring old podcast. <laughs> Find uh, Jeff
0: on Twitter, at Esoteric CD, And our guest today is a criminal justice reporter for Reason Magazine. You can follow him on Twitter, at CJ Saramella. Find his stories at Reason At Reason, coincidentally enough, um, he covers police and thieves. He's CJ Saramella. CJ, how are you?
2: I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on. I'm uh, ready to do the worm on
0: Necropolis. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, uh, we first want to find a little bit more about CJ before we get to our band, which you might have already figured out or perhaps seen on the label for this podcast episode. But uh, we ask uh, CJ and all of our guests before we start talking about music, how did you get into your little political uh, beat there? How did you get to reason and, and how did you get through your career?
2: Well, it's a, it's a long and winding story, but uh, I was started out as a reporter at the San Diego Union Tribune where I was covering exciting things oh. like uh, new roofs on the library and uh, tire recycling day. Um, <laughs> I managed to freelance an article for the Daily Caller and I uh, got a job offer over there. So I packed up my things and moved to D.C. Uh, to the Great Swamp uh, Shortly after that, I moved over to the Washington Free Beacon, where I covered things like transparency, energy, and some other uh, sort of politically adjacent things like oversight investigations, uh, which are a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, but then I, I, I eventually I was a political editor at BuzzFeed for a short stint, and um, then sort of moved over to Reason to go back to writing, where I covered criminal justice. I've covered criminal justice for a while. And like I said, it's politically adjacent. Um, oddly enough, people think of the criminal justice system as this very austere, not political institution, but it, it is racked by politics in all ways. Hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the way we administer justice is is a political question and uh, depends a lot on our leaders and elected officials and they debate about it. So I cover Congress and the laws they try and fail to pass on criminal justice. Um, as well as state and local politics and DA races and things like that. So uh, that's briefly how I made my way into the political sphere.
0: And uh, CJ, of course, has the honor of choosing the band for this edition of Political Beats, as you might have gathered already. Uh, it is, in fact, as they are known, the only ban that matters it's The Clash we discussed today on Political Beats. And we turn the floor back over to uh, CJ to start us off here and ask you to tell us uh, well, why you love The Clash, how you first got into them, and why anybody else out there should care about this band.
2: Sure. Well, I'll start off with how I, how I uh, discovered them. I was a guitar player as a teenager, uh, subscribed to Guitar World magazine, and the best way to fill space in a guitar magazine is to do best of lists. And they had a greatest albums of all time feature, and they had a, a section for punk. It was the greatest punk albums of all time. And uh, obviously, they had London Calling on there, which we'll talk about a lot later. Um, but I saw the I saw the cover with uh, Paul Simonon smashing his bass, the the iconic cover of London Calling and read this glowing, uh, blurb about this album. And I was 16 or 17 at the time. I knew about punk and some of the big bands I'd probably heard about the clash, but I couldn't really say I knew any of their songs, but I said, well, this sounds like, uh, sounds like something I should check out. I like heavy music. I really like heavy metal, uh, hard rock, things like that. And especially when I was a teenager. Um, so I made my way down to a record store, which was, uh, you know, a place where you could buy CDs, which were a physical format for music, if you don't remember them. <laughs> um, and I picked up The Clash's London Calling. Uh, I might have actually bought it at the Experience Music Project in Seattle, um, another giant physical institution to music. Uh, and I went and popped it in. And I, I got to say, actually, the first time I listened to London Calling, I, I was uh, kind of confused and underwhelmed. Um, I had been expecting to get an album full of buzzsaw guitars and snotty English guys saying rude things about the queen. Um, and instead I got an album with horns and reggae beats and I didn't really know what to think about it. Uh, I kind of set aside. I said, well, that was, that was okay. I guess I don't understand why that's the greatest punk album of all time, but, uh, I set it aside and, a while later, I picked it up again and I said, well, I'll give it another shot. And I started listening to it. And then after that, I listened to it a couple more times. And at one point I was listening to it and, you know, the track London Calling ended and I realized, oh, brand new Cadillac's coming up next. I love that song. <laughs> and then that song ended and I said, oh, oh, Hateful's coming up next. I love that song. And then track by track went through, I realized, wow, I, I love every song on this album. <laughs> this is, these are all really, really good songs. And, um, around those, my late teenage years, I had a job delivering pizza, which is the best bad job you can have. Um, and I would just ride around in my car listening to London calling over and over.
0: Your car was and not a brand new Cadillac, just to be clear. It was not a
2: brand new Cadillac. It was an 89 uh, <laughs> Ford Thunderbird. <laughs> um, but so my memories of the, my memories of London calling are, are driving around my hometown on like warm summer evenings just blasting london calling and singing along having a pocket full of cash and nothing really to spend it on uh, a pretty good memory and so that's i have these really fond feelings for this album
3: Was true, and at the top of the dial. And after all this, won't you give me a smile? I never felt so much
2: like a life, a Because uh, it reminds me of those sort of late teenage years um, and having a terrible job. And that's, that's sort of the Clash in a nutshell. Is you're listening to the song, singing along, and even if things aren't really the best, it's still kind of the glory days for you. The the Clash had this triumphant feeling that you know even things were kind of crappy. You're still uh, you're still like fighting and have this this sort of uh, you're fighting and having this triumphant feeling. I think that's why it really connected with me. I got the other albums. I eventually picked up the debut album. Uh, which is the album I probably should have got for what I wanted when I bought London Calling, <laughs> you know, the, the punk album. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I got Combat Rock and uh, Sandinista, which we will talk about later as well. Um, but for me, it's always been London Calling. That's, it, it's an album I could listen to over and over, and every single song on it is just a killer. There's not a There's not a flabby track on that album. Um, all right, we'll, we'll get into it more later, but I, I think the Clash are important because they are also, uh, uh, they had sort of a political outlook that a lot of the uh, punk bands that their contemporaries in 77 and onwards sort of made overtures to, but uh, it was a lot of empty talk, I think, for some of them, and the, the Clash really had this overarching idea and message, and there's a stridency to their music um that comes through that's lacking in a lot of the the other first wave of of english punk i feel like um it's just and it's just good solid music you can i can't understate how great the songs are on london calling and how good the songsmanship is
1: I think the age of sixteen is like the perfect, ideal age to fall in love with the Clash. That is exactly when it happened for me as well. And of course, you know, I was a rockist. I was a Beatlemaniac, maniac, classic rock kid in high school. Uh, and I don't even remember what it was that drove me to buy London Calling. Obviously, I had read about it, you know, and I'd I'd seen you know, the Rolling Stone critical reviews, the kind of books I'd pick up that would talk about how great this album was. But I was like, well, that's punk. I don't, I'm not really interested in that. And I was still kind of in that you know seventies, eighties music. Is that really where where I'm at? The only thing I knew about them at that point had been like, you know, videos of Rock the Casbot. And, you know, I was like, well, that guy's got a very, very funny looking haircut. And <laughs> so yeah, that, that was during the, the Mohawk era of Joe Strummer. Yeah. Um and so I think I finally just said, screw it, and like, you know, this costs nine ninety nine. I'll buy it at Best Buy. And this is what I mean when I say that, that the age of 16 or 17 is the best time to fall in love with a clash because there's nothing quite like the absolute, pure, unadulterated love – that you can bring to something in your adolescence. It's like your first true romance with a girl or, you know, the first book that ever spoke to you. When I found London Calling, I, I was, I literally thought like, I, I felt like I was the first person who'd ever discovered this record, which is hilarious, right? Because it's obviously one of the most famous albums of all time. But when I when I put this album on and instead of hearing like CJ, I was like, well, this isn't very punk music a couple of these songs are pretty speedy but this is just rock and roll this is great rock music and i heard all of these songs pouring out and these incredibly literate conceits too it's not all just like you know safety pin through the nose nihilism you know got Joe Strummer and, you know, Big Jones writing songs about like the Spanish Civil War, or, you know, you know, modern anime and consumer society, or doing rewrites of Stagger Lee and uh, you know, throwing in, you know, uh, you know, like meditations on the futility of revolt when everybody just grows old and ends up making payments on a sofa and a girl. I just couldn't get past how Brilliant and thoughtful and musically tight this was. And I was like, all right, well, this this is truly the only band that matters. Went and got the rest of their albums, and then I became one of those people who like would post in clash forums and like debating, well, okay, let's rearrange Sendinista. We'll find a way to make one good album out of this three <laughs> this three disc monstrosity. Or like, oh, do you think like the alternate versions of those combat rock songs are better? I became that kid for a very for a very concentrated period of time, particularly when I was like a freshman. Freshman and a sophomore in college. My obsession with the clash was almost all consuming. Same as it is these days. You know, my, my tastes have definitely spread out and gone into a lot of different places, but I'll never forget that blush of absolute love that I felt for them. Um, just amazed that these people could come out of nowhere and kind of flummox all expectations, start as one thing, and then almost effortlessly turn themselves into another thing. And then even you know a few more growing pains become another thing by the end of their career. It's so what I love about The Clash is actually they didn't stand still. There's only one punk album in the entire Clash, quintessential punk band, right? They only put out one record that I think is a punk record, and that's the first one. Uh, the rest of their music is either hard rock, rock and roll, or some very weird, you know, dubby, uh, reggae slash, uh, Scottish folk music fusion. Uh, I don't know how you want to characterize, you know, Sean Flynn or uh, lose the skin, but they get weird and they get weird fast. And I loved that that mutability about them, which is something again that you know you wouldn't have thought a punk band, you know, coming from a, a, a genre of music that has you know kind of such rigorous purity standards, and uh you know has a whole kind of. A, Listen, I, I've known music fanatics almost all my life now, for the majority of my life at least. I've been in conversation with people who get really kind of frothy about music. And there, there's there's no subgenre of music fanatic that is more tiresome to deal with than punk purists. The kinds of people who say that, like, yeah, you know, the Buzzcocks were good, uh, except that they sucked after their first EP. Their first EP was the only good one. All those hit singles that you like them for, those were sellout stuff. Or, like, the people who say, like, the Clash sucked after uh, White Man and Hammersmith Palais because then they sold out and they got like, they hired the Blue Oyster Cult producer to do their <laughs> stuff, man. Like, punk fans, especially in their adolescence or they're in college, can be really, really, really tribal about things. So, it's just funny to think about what punk meant. I think the clash are one of the great punk bands of all time because punk should be more of an attitude than a musical style. I think, you know, you can say Lou Reed or the early velvet underground was punk too, but of course they're an art rock band, but the attitude is punk. The clash were always a punk group, not because musically they were just using three chords and, you know, barking, you know, stuff into the microphone while their fans gobbed on them from the audience. Uh, They're punk because they just didn't care about what it was they were told that they could or could not do musically, and that shows through in all of their music. And I guess that's why to this day I I I still love them. And you know it's funny that you know we can no matter how old we get. We will never outrun our Amazon.com review section. Um, <laughs> mine is particularly embarrassing, because if you go head back to, like, 1999 and 2000, when the Amazon reviews had just started, what are you going to find? You're going to find me writing all these really, really fawning reviews of all the clashes records, like, with the Hey, you guys, this stuff is great! Why don't you guys realize how awesome one the calling is? Come on, guys! Oh, the enthusiasm of youth. We're going to be reliving that here. <laughs> and, uh... I guess I, I, I
0: basically backdoored my way into uh, the Clash meeting. I, I was not when I found them. I wasn't lo- was not looking for a a punk band uh, because I had known the singles that still got played on classic rock radios so and Should I Stay or Should I Go and Rock the Casbah. Um, and then I my first one would have been London Calling. And I think largely because of two things. One is it ranked very highly, very highly. I think top twenty. 15 in that uh, Rolling Stone 100 best albums of the past 20 years list from 1987, which I you know read over and over again and London calling was somewhere in the top 20 and then my roommate was a uh, Was a clash fan and he had London calling so I think my first uh, exposure, you know deep exposure was was probably borrowing his copy of London calling Uh, and from there kind of working backwards um to the punk years almost uh or the punk punk album almost the, the 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 debut album and uh london calling in my mind has only grown and you know certainly we'll spend more time on on that in just a minute but th- that is just an album that has only grown better in my mind the more i've heard it um and it really is one of the as rolling stone mentioned in their list one of the top albums of the past you know blank years it's such an achievement and um what came after is a little disappointing in my mind, which we'll get to in a bit. But that, that one just stands so so tall uh, uh, in their work. Before we get there, there are still uh, there are albums to cover. There's a, there's a, an origin story. Uh, CJ or, or, or Jeff, one of you guys, want to sort of explain how this band came together?
1: I mean, the short version, we don't really even have to spend too much time with it. The short version is that a bunch of guys uh, saw the punk revolution as it happened, the Sex Pistols, and said, hey, you know what? I can do that, too. And I think the telling thing about them is that they were all playing different genres of music at the time. So like Joe Strummer was involved in the pub rock scene in England. I don't really think there's anybody in America who isn't a huge hardcore music nerd that's going to get. Anything out of my phrase, punk, uh, pub rock, because it means nothing here. But it's bands like, you know, Rockpile and you know Dave Edmonds, Brinsley Schwartz, Nick Lowe's old band, Nick Brinsley Schwartz before he, he set out on his own. Uh, this is basically like good times boogie music, you know, very rock, not not Prague and not like the sort of puffed up stadium stuff of the seventies. But it was sort of simple music, and Strummer came out of that group, and he's a middle class guy. He's the son of a Turkish diplomat. He's not like a working class even though he, he obviously kind of played that image up when he when they started the group and then i think the rest of the band is really mick jones's band which is something that's easily forgotten because strummer has such a forceful personality mick jones is the guitarist that uh, he sings on a lot of songs um as a, a fantastic knack for writing catchy melodies uh found paul Simonon, uh, who's their bassist he didn't know how to play an instrument he said you know you, i like you you're a cool guy I'd like you to be in a band, but first you know you need to actually be able to play an instrument, because I'm going to be singing lead vocals. <laughs> so Simonon learned bass, and as it turned out, he got pretty good at it pretty fast. He ended up having a real good feel for the instrument, certainly when it comes to playing reggae, which is a deceptively difficult genre to play. Um, and then they found, uh, at the time actually, it was a guy named Terry Chimes, who I think for the, the Clash's debut album was nick- renamed Tory Crimes pretty funny I love that this is during this is during the beginning of Thatcher's uh, Thatcher's reign Tory Crimes Terry Chimes uh, but then he left after that album he didn't want to be a part of the band and then they found this guy who I've always considered to be the Clash's true secret weapon I don't think enough people who are just casual fans of the band appreciate this. And that's Topperhead, who's their drummer, who is, I think, by far the best instrumentalist in the band on a purely technical level. The guy could play not only with metronomic precision, but he could just pump with such energy he got such sounds out of his drums and mm-hmm. he was a really creative arranger for drums he had a natural feel for a lot of different styles of music including styles of music that it's just frankly really difficult for uh you know To be blunt, for a lot of white people to play, so reggae in particular, a lot of really bad, really bad late 70s British and American attempts to play reggae music, particularly as it was sort of seen as adjacent to the punk scene. The Clash were the only ones that ever really gained acceptance for an ability to create a unique kind of fusion of like punk and reggae, and the reason they were able to do that is because of Hedden. What a fantastic drummer he is. But, of course, that's just a little bit further ahead in the story from where we are now, because what happens is they they go on tour, they kind of brush up their act, they start writing songs. Um, You know, Mick brings some songs to Strummer and says, hey, you want to write some better lyrics for these? Strummer's more of the lyricist. And what they end up coming out with is a self-titled album just called The Clash, which is pretty obscure. Uh, Not a lot of people have heard of it, and I really don't think we need to spend much time on it
2: yeah we'll just skip right over that there's not a lot going on there didn't make much of a splash uh kind of forgotten along with some other forgettable 1977 punk releases <laughs> kind of a forgettable year overall i think
1: yeah it wasn't really a lot going on in music at that time particularly in england it was, it was mostly you know mostly just super tramp <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, what is there to say about the Clash's debut album? This is this is the landmark of punk. I mean, a lot of people. Uh, this is again when I talk about you know punk super fans being kind of onerous. Like If you say, well, though, The Clash's debut is the greatest punk album of all time, they're well, going to immediately get up in your face and say, no, it's not. There are so many better good p- punk albums out there. You don't really understand the genre. What about Minor Threat? What about The Stranglers? What, listen, there are a lot of great punk albums out there. I actually might say Wire's Pink Flag is my favorite punk album of all time. But if we're talking about the one that when you say punk in the dictionary uh, and for some reason you have the weird dictionary that has pictures in it instead of words... <laughs> What's the picture going to be? It's going to be Nevermind the Bollocks, and it's going to be the Clash's debut album. This is a landmark of music.
2: Yeah, I, I went back and I listened to, for to prepare for this, I went back and listened to also the other big 1977 punk releases, um, the Ramones' Rocket to Russia and the Sex Pistols' Nevermind the Bollocks," as well as The Damned. And I, I think I think the Clash's debut album stacks up really well in comparison to them. It was, especially for how cheaply it was recorded in the time, the time in which it was recorded. I think mm-hmm. it was recorded over about three weekends for about 4,000 British pounds. Um, and it sounds, it sounds really good. I mean, it doesn't have the polish of Never Mind the Bullocks, uh, which really benefited from Steve Jones and uh, his really great guitar work on that album. And it doesn't also doesn't have the sort of polish or tightness of uh, rocket to Russia, but uh, it definitely stands up there you can make an argument for it you might not win the argument but you can make an argument for it as the best 1977 punk debut and uh it, it's just got some real good classic punk numbers on it uh, do you guys want to go go into our favorite songs off it or what
0: yeah feel free go for it
2: all right um well i think uh we, we got to talk a little bit about white riot i guess um I think white riots, the sort of punkiest song on the album. Uh, there is some issues with it. Uh, there issues with it now and there's definitely issues with, or there's issues with it then and some issues with it. Now, basically the subject matter, uh, Wait, are
1: are, are you saying that white riot is a problematic song? CJ? I'm saying it. No,
2: I'm saying it's not problematic as intended, but it comes off now as a little bit weird. Um, it's sort of like a gaffe that Bernie Sanders might make on a bad day. Uh, (laughs) The, the lyrics are basically Joe Strummer saying, uh, hey, black people riot sometimes because they're angry. Why don't white people do that too? Which is a little bit of a weird message. Uh, but the song itself is just such a slamming punk number. It's, it's the fastest, hardest song on the album, I think. And uh, I really love the way it ends too. It ends with this sort of exclamation point at the end, which is this snare drum. POP! Gonna look for a quintessential song punk song off this album. It it kind of has to be this one, even though, like I said, the the lyrics are a little problematic in the parlance of our times. <laughs> I think uh the other standout track for me is Hate and More, which is we were talking a little bit earlier about Mick uh Mick Jones's uh contributions, and this is one of the first real standout vocal tracks from Mick. Uh his vocals as opposed to Strummer has this kind of snotty British sneer through the album. The whole album has like the, the snotty British accent turned up to 11. Mm-hmm. But Mick always has sort of a different vocal quality, it has this almost plaintive sort of yell to it. Uh, it's also a great song. It has this over the verse, Paul's bass kind of boogies over the verses. And then we'll see this a lot later in some of the other Clash songs. It comes sort of like a trademark Clash thing, but it opens up into this big, big chorus, like anthemic chorus. Um, it, it's just a standout track, I think, from Mick. Um, <laughs> My other other sort of favorite track is Police and Thieves, which is, we were talking earlier about the the reggae influence, and this is the first time The the Clash laid down a reggae track on an album. bit earlier about how punk is an attitude and I think the reason why the reason why the Clash were able to do reggae convincingly and not as a sort of kitschy uh, throwaway thing like, you know, Eric Clapton covering I Shot the Sheriff.
1: <laughs> or the Rolling Stones doing Cherry Oh Baby. I don't know if you've ever heard that off of Black and Blue, <laughs> but ooh, it hurts. Yeah.
2: Yeah. No, the reason they were able to pull this off, I think, is because they, they did see punk as an attitude and when they listened to Reggae, they heard that edge in it. Now, if all you know about reggae is like Bob Marley's Legend album, you might not get it, but reggae has a political edge to it. And it it was very topical at the time. It talked a lot about what was going on in Jamaica. It talked a lot about what was going on in England. And so they covered Junior Mervyn's Police and Thieves. Um, And they do a real respectable job on it. The album is kind of sparse. There's not a lot going on in the background. Uh, but they managed to do a convincing job of this of this uh, hit reggae song from 1977. Uh, although Junior Mervin said at the time they didn't like it because he thought they ruined his song. If you listen to the Junior Mervin track, he kind of sings it in this really really nice falsetto. Um, and then I, which imagine, was which
1: not within the realm of Joe Strummer's vocal. Ability. No, no.
2: So imagine Junior Mervin here. Oh, this these punk boys covered my song, and he listens to it, and hears Joe Strummer croaking his lyrics. Um, but I, it did come off as the the first and uh, overall successful reggae attempt uh, by the Clash, and I think it was the first time. If you're listening to Clash, that you sort of see that there's more to this band uh, than might meet the eye. There's some stuff under the hood there in terms of talent and songwriting and ability to handle different genres and musical styles um, than just another 1977 punk band. Um, You know, the Ramones and their Sex Pistols weren't going to pull off anything like that. And uh, none of their contemporaries were really uh, had the chops to do it either.
0: Scott? Yeah, from this, this is uh, you look at at what they did on, on on this first album, and and you know what what punk is this reaction in part to how blo- bloated you know rock this is you know as Jeff kind of mentioned this is it's only rock and roll and, and black and blue era for the Stones and and so this is I mean it's shorter, faster, tighter, and it's supposed to be about things, and and the Clash got that very early on, and Joe Strummer's lyrics um, are about you know real things in many of these cases. Um, You know, you take the leadoff track, Janie Jones, which Jeff had mentioned in our introduction, and kind of fuse that with What's My Name. And I think that's like the the primordial DNA for what Green Day would do later on, just listening to that uh, and the way that the chords uh, change and how the song kind of chugs along. Those are my favorite parts of the album, though. I uh, take out a couple. I'm so bored with the USA is uh, uh, a great anthemic kind of song. You've got that that huge chorus, that downstep guitar in the co- in in the chorus as well. And uh, uh, the song born from some something that was misheard. I think it was Mick Jones had was had a song. Yeah,
1: he, he wrote a song. He was pissed off at his girlfriend, yeah. so he wrote I'm so bored with you. And Joe Sturm was <laughs> like, "Oh, I really oh, I really like that. I'm so bored with the USA." And Mick was like, "Well, that wasn't what I wrote, but that's That's a lot better than what I wrote, right? And 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 it's it's such a great sentiment too. Like you know, the Americanization of the world. Ah, everywhere you turn, it's McDonald's. You know I'm so bored with this crap. Yeah, it dropping it's so
0: funny Nixon and Watergate references and and you know U.S. support to uh, dictatorships and this this is you know a theme that we'll see in, in some Joe Strummer lyrics down the line too. I think my favorite song of the album probably is Career Opportunities, uh, which to me is kind of Ramones asking and what they've been going for about two years before. This album from the Clash came out, Uh, but what it's just got a bruising tempo, and this this you know again the lyrics about what awaits uh, you know young British uh, men as as they're ready to enter the workforce, and the the point is uh, not a whole lot military police jobs. There's the line uh, I won't open letter bombs for you. Mick Jones actually worked. Uh, you know, doing that, you know, in in the uh, in you know the the UK postal service, and uh, that was a time when, that was kind of the first line against mail bombs was oh, yeah, why don't you open this, see what's inside, yeah, uh, IRA stuff, IRA I stuff, yeah, and uh, so I, I really like career opportunities. I hate the army and I hate the-
3: The one ever not. Every job they up, I used to
0: kick you off the dock land right toward the end of the album I think it's the last song in the album actually this response to a critic who uh, who said the first time he saw the clash they should go back to the garage and and leave the car on? And so there's a uh, uh, you know this this song about you know we're a garage band and and that's what we are and we're not going to forget our roots and despite the uh, you know signing to a major record label at that point and they, that is uh, you know uh, CJ mentioned Joe Strummer's vocals they're going to evolve here pretty quickly still figuring things out but getting there on a track like uh, like like Garage Land. Uh, start to finish, so good, so much energy. They can play, too. Um, you know, Topper is a very good drummer from the... Well, he's he's not on a lot of this album, of course, but he's a very good drummer from the start. But the other guys can play, too. They aren't just banging out these songs in two-minute bursts of energy as kind of the prototypical, stereotypical punk track would be. They can play. They can write. And it's evident from this first album.
1: I mean, the, the thing, the secret to The Clash's debut album... And the the reason why, again, I, I always i always have maybe uh, over time. And of course, I came to this album much later in life. But I, I, my favorite punk album from that era, the British, you know, early punk explosion, is actually Pink Flag by Wire. But the thing about Wire is that, you know, they they were using punk as a skin suit. You know, they really they were an art rock band, a bunch of like literally like graphic artists and visual artists who decided to just use this the simple means of expression because they thought they could get away with some rather avant garde ideas. This. This is a different kind of punk album where the commitment is to it, is to the actual like the idea of rebellion and not just as a cheap trope. But, you know, as as we talked about at the intro, they, they really you know, they believed in this. They had a they had a political message. They had a program. It was something that they they really pushed throughout their career. I, I had read uh,
0: uh, uh, th- their manager. Uh, Bernie Rhodes, his apartment was the only thing in his apartment basically was stacks and stacks of Marxism Today magazine. (laughs) That's where they're coming from. Yeah, well, yeah.
2: CJ? Yeah, I think, no, I just want to go back to what you were saying about the lyrics. I think one of the things that makes one of the reasons this album really hit and kind of exploded and made The Clash a big band was that they were also writing about what they knew. Mm -hmm. Um, They were very accurately describing these sort of grim landscape of 1970s england and you know writing about their own times you know in crappy jobs and doing all their sort of stuff and all these all these disaffected kids were listening to her saying yeah i get that i hear where you're coming from
1: well okay, uh, but, but when talking about that okay you've got again the lyrics on this album are just so brilliant in that respect because they even deal it in, in you know slightly subtler uh you know methods like irony straight up irony that you wouldn't expect from a punk band it's supposed to be you know, like straight right on the nose punching in the face with the message <clears throat> london's burning is one of my favorite songs on this record you hear the phrase london's yeah. burning and you think okay it's riots it's you know chaos in the streets no london's burning with boredom now london's oh, man, burning yeah. dial nine 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 there's that great that great lyric where it, you just the sarcasm in Joe Strummer's voice just drips off of your your, your your earphones when you listen to it. It's like, I'm up and down the Westway, in and out the lights. What a great traffic system. It's so bright. I can't <laughs> think of a better way to spend the night than speeding around underneath the yellow lights. It's just like, look at my dismal go nowhere existence. I have nothing to do. Uh, London is burning with boredom now. What a fantastic fantastic song and what a fantastic inversion of your expectations mm-hmm. when you, you, you he starts out with like london's burning and you're like okay this is gonna be a riotous song and like no it's a song of you know of complete you know you know cynicism about you know the fact that you know kids in that era really had no prospects and really nothing to do
0: Uh, It's the companion piece to I'm So Bored with the USA. I'm So Bored with London.
1: Exactly. And, and the real secret of this album is that the songwriting is just A+. plus. These are all simple songs. Anybody who has a guitar and a rudimentary knowledge of chords can play every one of these songs. And Lord knows you don't have to have a, a very sharp set of pipes to sing them because Joe Strummer managed somehow to do it. So you can play all of these songs and yet they're well written. It kind of reminds me of that first Velvet Underground album, where those are all really simple songs, quarterly, but they're all incredibly memorable. Career Opportunities isn't just a great lyric. The lyric that Scott mentioned is also one of my favorites. We're like, you know, I hate the Civil Service too, I won't open letter bombs for you. And then there's like the strummer again, just says, yeah! He just has such a, you can just feel like he's hocking up part of his lungs as he sings with contempt. But the song itself is just really catchy. That chorus, career opportunities—the one that never knocks. Boom, boom, ba 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 They knew how to put together good songs, good melodies in this package too. There's nothing lazy about this first album. It's like one of those, one of those uh, sort of sleight of hand tricks where they make it look like they don't care, but clearly they care because how could they not care if they're putting out music that is this compactly written and this tightly put together this precise and you know they just i'm sorry you, you say something
2: oh yeah i just like uh, you're talking about mick jones earlier i mean mick jones is real early sort of uh band that he loved was mott the hoople he'd spent yeah. time traveling around following mott the hoople and then later his other like, huge influence before the clash startup was the new york doll so he had this You know, he spent a lot of time sort of studying at the knee of these pretty tight, good bands. And, you know, I think that comes through on the album a lot.
1: Yeah, I I, I think so, too. And and I I think... Also, the quality of that songwriting comes through on what happens next. There's a transitional period between this first album and then the next album. And then during that period, they put out these three non-album singles. Uh, the first of all, well, they put out four singles. And, of course, one of them doesn't go over so well with the band, the, the, the label CBS, <laughs> the major label that they'd signed with and caught a lot of flack for from the punk scene, for kind of selling out by taking a big advance to sign with a major label. Um they uh, sign with CBS, and then CBS uh, releases Remote Control from the album as a single, and, and they're pissed. They they actually kind of like the song, but they didn't want to have it released without their say-so. So what do they do? They, their next single is something called Complete Control. It's a fantastic song, a famous song, and it begins with the lyrics. They said, release Remote Control, but we didn't want it on the label. They got away. Uh, with their first major post album statement by taking a shot at the record company and the record company just said, yeah, okay, that's fine with us. Put it on out. Not a problem. And of course the other thing is they brought in Lee Perry to produce it. Now the funny thing is Lee Perry, scratch Perry is one of the most famous reggae producers and the guy who's, whose own discography. You know, if you're into reggae uh, is you know, something you can just dive into and and you won't, you won't resurface for a month. But, but, uh, I don't actually hear his production that much on this song. <laughs> I hear like the tricks that he uses on his, his his famous, you know, sort of echoing dubby reggae tracks come up a lot later in the Clash's career. But on "Complete Control," this isn't a reggae song. This is straight up hard rock. Mm-hmm. This is a kind of a classic single. <laughs> Uh, you know, one of my favorites, and I also I also really like its B side, uh, which is something called Jail Guitar Doors. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. Uh, it's just uh, basically the moment where I've always thought that the Rolling Stones became cool again, because there's that that last lyric. Uh, this is a song, a B side, uh, about like you know va- various rebels and outlaws. Uh, in the rock world and in, in other places and then the last lyric is about the Rolling Stones in 1977 Keith had famously been arrested by the Toronto police for like trying to travel through the country with uh, an entire pharmaceutical <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I don't know I don't think they don't sell heroin in pharmacies but like, he, he had basically more drugs than than many you know South American narco regimes and uh, you know they were going to send him away for trafficking and then there's that great last that last verse where he's like and then there's 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 Keith waiting for trial, 25,000 bail. If he goes down, you won't hear his sound, but his friends carry on anyway clang clang go the jail guitar doors and that was the moment where i feel like the rolling stones got their rebel credibility back because if the clash was willing to sing about them and sort of lionize keith for being a rebel hero well then maybe just maybe the rolling stones could be cool again and i think that they they, they kind of saw the opportunity and grasped it when they came out with some girls which is about as punkish as the rolling stones themselves ever got We have those three singles, Complete Control, Clash City Rockers, and White Man and Hammersmith Palais. you guys have any thoughts of those before we get to get, give them enough rope?
2: Uh, I don't, so the, there, there's the issue with the UK and US versions of, uh, of the debut album. The US, It was the US version, the one with Hammersmith Palais on it? Yes.
1: Yes. Okay. That, came, that came out in 1979, right before London Calling. So they, they had all. It was actually after Give Them Enough Rope. It, the reason is, is that the import version, the UK import version, had been selling so much in the United States that eventually the American, you know, label just said, okay, well, why are why are we not releasing this? And so they 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 gave them an updated version, and instead of just releasing the straight original, they decided, well, let, let's put all these good non-album singles on it instead. And there's a lot of people who prefer that version, but you know me, I'm a purist. I'm I'm a punk purist. I'm one of those horrible people.
2: Uh, yeah. I think Hammersmith play is another sort of great indication of where the band is going. Uh, it shows you a little bit of their trajectory. And I think, you know, by that time they were already starting to wear out their punk phase. You know, they were looking out the crowd and still seeing people with, you know, uh, safety pins in their nose and stuff. And kind of, they didn't, they didn't really feel like they were fitting in anymore. And this is like you said, transition period into what they would become. And, I, I think it's they're, they're good stuff, and it's it's very good as an indication of how good this band is going to be. Um, it's, I think "Hammersmith Palais" is one of the better songs off their early period.
0: Absolutely, yes. Um, just briefly, yeah. "Hammersmith Palais" just a great groovy beat and a wonderful bass line uh, pushes that song through. Uh, Clash City Rockers, powerful song and uh, a complete control, which Jeff spent uh, uh, time talking about. I have to add that to my. Unofficial list of best uh, best songs, you know, ripping your own record company, which to me, uh, you know, Graham Parker's Mercury Poisoning is just, just bitterly outstanding. But this one, this one does pretty well. So it goes on the list. Uh, complete Control, yes.
1: The thing about, for me, for me, it's all about White Man and Hammersmith Palais. And that, that's the moment where they just became the Clash as the Clash were going to become famous for. And it's worth pointing out that this is produced by Sandy Perlman who mm-hmm. is infamously blue oyster cults producer blue oyster cults a band that you know doesn't get any real cred these days the, of course everyone knows don't fear the reaper but they had some pretty interesting hard rock stuff going on during the 70s uh when the clash you know the first they signed to CBS but then they get this guy to produce their next album these people have no integrity whatsoever do they but the first thing they release is this song and this is probably the single most uh, i'd say brilliant political commentary uh, also social commentary uh in the entire career of the band and you know maybe clampdown comes close to it but uh it's this or that there's that great line this is a song about how the you know there's a big reggae kind of like um uh, what's the word, it's like a big package deal where all these groups come from Jamaica and they're coming to London, it's going to be the authentic reggae experience, and of course who's excited about this? Well, the Clash are, are out of their mind excited about this, uh, and then they go and it, they're just disappointed because instead of it being the authentic rebel experience like what CJ was talking about uh, it's just about it's just showbiz you know, and there's that great lyric where, where Strummer sings, you know, you know, but it was four tops all night with encores from stage right, changing from The bass nines to the treble, but on stage they ain't got no roots rock rebel. They got none of that, and so like you know, instead of this this authentic experience, he just you know he got a bunch of packaged glitz, and he kind of ended up thinking, well, wait a second. That's disappointing, but then the title also undercuts it too, because he's like, well, I'm the white man in the Hammersmith Palais. You know, this is not a show for me necessarily. This is a show for, <laughs> there's of course a very large, you know, uh, you know, Caribbean population in London who, and, and, you know, African population in London. And of course, this was music for them. They were the primary target audience for this. So there's that, there's that little sense of like, well, who am I to be telling these people what they're supposed to do? But nevertheless, it still ends with that, 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 that line, that final line. Which is probably one of the most famous lyrics in the history of the Clash. All over people changing their votes along with their overcoats, but if Adolf Hitler flew in here today, they'd send a limousine for him anyway. Which is that is that does not spare anybody at all. It's a fantastic song.
2: layers to his lyrics of, you know, where he's reflecting on, you know, there's there's sort of layers of narrators in some of his lyrics and layers of reflection. And that's, that's what you get in Hammersmith Pillay. He's looking at this scene and then pulls out and looks at himself and is looking at this broader political scene. It's a very, you know, um, I think he's one of the best lyricists of the, of the punk era. Obviously the clash moved out of punk, but you know, this is one of his really great lyrical, uh, lyrical works from the Clash's early period.
1: So what do we do about The Clash's difficult, note in quotes, difficult second album? Give them enough rope. This is the one they did with Sandy Pearlman. This is uh, a much harder sound. And a much, you know, the songs are longer. They're a little bit more drawn out. I think some of them can be even downright sluggish at times. uh, And a little bit formless. Uh, A lot of people really dislike this album they consider the clash is like well there's the debut album and let's just go to london calling let's forget all about that second record i think it's actually a pretty good record i think there are definitely at least three or four songs on here that aren't aren't just good they're among the greatest of the band's career and them funniest they've ever done and i guess for me that conversation starts with talk about you know problematic songs but i just think are so brilliant lyrically uh safe european home Mm -hmm. oh again you know joe strommer's such a smart lyricist you know he talks about you know, doing the opposite. Instead of Jamaica coming to London, we're hey, go. let's take a trip to Jamaica. <laughs>
0: what were you saying, Scott? They're gonna go. Yeah, they're gonna go instead yeah, of. Yeah, they're gonna go. They're to gonna
1: hit. go visit, and it's gonna be wonderful. We're gonna get in touch with uh, the music that we love and the, these wonderful people. We're gonna have a lot of great time, fun in the sun. And instead, what happens? I went to the face where I went to the place where every white face is an invitation to robbery. I'm sitting <laughs> out here, in my go back there again that again is just first of all it's a it's a naked confession he, he understands he's putting himself on the spot by saying that like yeah i I, 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 I was basically doing uh, you know sort of you know ethnotourism I thought this would be a lot of fun and boy did i get a large dose of reality with it <laughs> and of course when it's matched with that incredible music probably the first time the band came together as a true hard rock mm-hmm. ensemble the crashing dun, 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 dun boom, ba-dun boom. that's the clash as a rock machine uh, it's the first time you hear that i think that's one of their greatest songs
0: I like this album quite a bit. I mean, really. I know that there are some who are quite down on it. I know there are some that don't really love the production from Sandy Perlman. Reportedly, he did not like Joe Strummer's voice, and so if you listen, the, the drums are mixed awfully high on Give Him Enough Rope, sometimes enough to kind of drown out Joe Strummer's vocals. But I still think it works really well, and there are some great songs on here. Um, Julie's been working for the Drug Squad. That is such a catchy song. Um, almost, I mean, should have been a single probably, right? There's a great swing to it, a shuffle to it. There's real catchy piano... Uh, yeah, is that the
2: is that the first appearance of piano on a clash song I, I think it I is I
1: think so yep. I think so and it's just so jaunty too it is so funny I mean it's the first clash song that's like a joke almost right. you know like with, with that man, little a little where he's like 10 years for you 19 for you it's just, he's <laughs> like the judge is just like tossing out sentences having fun everyone's going to jail you can get out in 25 if you're still alive oh it's so fun and
0: strummer's so great at that delivery too I mean just what you just mentioned and then the number of times he's shouting things before the actual lyrics begin it's just he inhabits that lead singer frontman position uh, so well for uh, a great uh, amount of the Clash's work <laughs> Julie's been working for the Drug Squad, probably my favorite one on the album. Um, uh, Guns on the Roof, which is a a semi-true tale about a couple of the band members... Uh, shooting uh, pigeons on the roof, you know, off the roof. And uh, they were racing pigeons. The guy came up. The police had to get called in. Um, the guitar intro to that is just a straight Nick of I Can't Explain from the Who. And that carries through the song. Uh, like Guns on the Roof, uh, All the Young Punks. Uh, CJ mentioned, you know, Mick Jones loved Mont the Hoople. And, of course, All the Young Dudes, which is a, a Bowie song that Mop the Hoople did. Kind of a play on that with All the Young Punks and this, uh, this sort of mythical story of the band and how they became uh, big and, and got a contract, but also a warning in parts, two. But it's not quite, perhaps, as good as you th- might think it is, right? We got the future shining like a piece of gold, but I swear, as we get closer, it looks more like a lump of coal. Uh, all the young punks, new boots and contracts in 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 there too, and uh, Tommy Gun. I, I, I've heard some people kind of down on Tommy Gun. I like Tommy Gun quite a bit. Yeah, that that machine I'm not a fan. gun uh, snare hits. Um, uh, so that's a good one. The, the production is thicker. I mean, it's bigger, thicker production. It's, you know, as you said, Blue Colts guy doing the turning the dials. And so it is a little more direct to the ear, uh, perhaps a little more illicit or friendly in some places. Uh, but I, I really like Give Him an Up. It's a good album
1: yeah there's too much for me sonically there's there's too much gumbo on this like there's songs that aren't really well defined uh, they don't have really well- defined melodies, and so they just end up sinking into the murk of all the like the guitar noise like like last gang in town. I've heard that song probably a hundred times now. I still really can't tell you much of it other than the first line, you know cheap skates. Uh, guns on the roof, drug stabbing time. Those have never been my favorites. And you know the other one is English Civil War, which was a single, but I don't know. It's what is that? Do I really need to hear a hard rock version of when Johnny's Come Marching Home Again? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. It's 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 cheap. It's 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 a lazy song. And it's, you know, you know it's like that would, I think, kind of be the clashes I'm doing in later years is when they get lazy. The other one I just wanted to mention, and before I hand it to CJ, is I, I I wonder what people think about Stay Free, which is kind of like the quintessential Mick Jones song. What's the difference between Joe Strummer and Mick Jones? Joe Strummer's got all like the hard political lyrics, he's got the really topical, relevant subjects. And Mick Jones is, is a bit dreamier and more sentimental and you know maybe it fits with his voice because he has that very plaintive voice mm-hmm. um and stay free i think is, is is kind of the quintessential mick jones song because it's a song about like you know childhood friends you know we met when we were in school you know we took no shit from no one we weren't fools were not fools we were only having fun kind of a like a very pretty song uh pretty as hard rock can get at least uh, I really like it. And I always, you know, even though it's just so cliched, I do love that ending part where you know, it says, go easy, step lightly, stay free. Yeah, yeah. That gets my sentimental. But I remember being 17 <laughs> year old smoking cigarettes and doing like dumb things when I was a kid, too. And so that one still hits the notes for me.
2: No, I, I think stay free is a is a great song i i would go as far as say it's the second greatest ode to teen dude friendship after super bad uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just a, it's an autobiographical song it's there's a real dude it's based on who went to jail for uh robbery and this was Mick jones's little ode to him uh saying you know about how he sees him he wants to go see him at his favorite bar when he gets out and uh, I think, unfortunately, the guy was based on ended up going back to jail for robbery again. Um, but it's just a nice—it's a nice little song. It's another great Mick Jones uh, sort of lyrical and vocal departure from Joe Strummer, like you were talking about. I did my I think I think given Off giving off ropes a fine album it it would be remembered a lot more fondly um, if it wasn't sandwiched between one of the greatest <laughs> 77 punk releases and one of the greatest albums of all time mm-hmm. uh, It sort of gets lost in the middle there but it is, there's there's some good tunes on here. I think it's a fun listen. I like Tommy Gun uh, in fact I love the snare drums when it when it comes up and it has those big power chords those big crashing power chords that come in. And then after that sort of marching snare drum, uh you go into that you go into the verse. It's like a perfect beat for pogo dancing. If you were a, <laughs> if you were a punk at a show and that came on, you would jump up and down. It's almost impossible, I think, to listen to the to the beat on Tommy Gunn and not sort of start bobbing your head. There's also a great live song for the Clash. I think there's some good live performances of it. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a fun song to cover. If you look it up, you can find some good covers of, uh, like Slater Kenny doing it, and they do a great job on it. it it's just a good, solid rock song. I'm not going to say it's one of the best the Clash ever did, or that it's really exceptional, but I think it's a it's a great, fun rock song. stay free that's one of my other favorite songs on the album julie's been working for the drug squad i appreciate uh as a criminal justice reporter because it's about
1: about excessive sentences handed out to uh drug manufacturers i realize
2: now that i was basically destined to be a clash fan and a criminal justice reporter because all they sing about are police and drug runners and (laughs) things like that uh but no, I think this is a fine album. There's a few great, there's a few good songs on it. There's some stinkers that you can sort of skip over. I don't even know if I call them stinkers, but they're forgettable, like Jeff was saying a bit. Um but you know, uh I would give every now and then I pop, give them enough rope on just for a break from you know the regular clash sort of hits.
1: All right, now I'm gonna turn around and put you right back on the spot again, CJ, because because it's unfair and I can do what I want. Find something new and insightful to say about one of the greatest albums ever released, *London Calling*.
2: Okay, all right. I mean, I could go. I could go track by track through this, but um, I'll go with my favorite song, which is "Spanish Bombs." I think it's the best song the Clash ever recorded. Um, and what I love about this song, this is a very sort of well, like thing that's specific to me is i love minor four chords um <laughs> if you don't know music theory I, I don't really you know you're not quite going to get it but i can explain it to you a little bit i can't explain the theory but i'll explain to you the sound in spanish bombs it starts off with the uh, acoustic guitar in that little melody line and there's a chord at the end of the chord progression it's the last chord on there you go, da. da, 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 da that last note when they hit that chord do you hear that jangly sort of uh that bright jangly chord that's almost like a question mark at the end <laughs> of the song or the end of the progression and that's the minor four chord and the reason i point it out is because it's kind of unusual to hear it in a straight ahead rock song um it, you definitely don't hear it in hard rock songs because uh, it's a very pretty sort of weird it's
1: a it's a romantic chord mm. right and 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 that kind of it's almost perfect because this is sort of like a romantic epic about you know was yes. what, about a lot of things. But you have the Spanish Civil War, like the great lost cause. You know, for all 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 of the you know the true Reds, <laughs> the great lost cause is the Spanish Civil War. So it's perfect.
2: No, but this is it's this unusual chord. The Beatles like to use it a lot. You can hear it in the chorus of "She Loves You," um, and you hear it a lot in doo-wop songs. But it's to put it in Spanish bombs is it shows a level of sort of uh craft and songwriting that the clash really hadn't demonstrated up until london calling there's so much good songwriting that goes beyond the typical three chord punk song in this album in spanish Bonds does a lot with a little bit there's a pretty simple chord progression and a pretty simple melody but they they managed to make it real pretty um and it also has these uh joe really nice impressionistic lead. about the spanish civil war like we were talking about i love the line about the the trenches full of poets the ragged army fixing bayonets to fight the enemy line you know that's there was actually volunteers uh in the spanish civil war guys you know george orwell showed up to fight you know things like that and there's allusions to that in the song about the poet uh some of the poets one of them was killed by the soviets but that's another story (laughs) yeah (laughs)
1: Yeah, Federico Garcia Lorca, right? Yeah,
2: Lorca was killed by the Soviets, but, you know, so I think, you know, it is a very romantic song about a very romantic, uh, but also terrible war. And, and it has these great sort of impressionistic lyrics where Joe Sturm was talking about being in Spain and then shifting back to the civil war and things like that. It's my absolute favorite song on the album. Um... And that, that just that one chord for me is what, what shows me that this is on a totally different level than, than anything that's come before on uh, Give Him Enough Rope or the Clash's debut album. The
3: Hillside Swing with-
1: would have thought that the same four guys who did give him enough rope could have come up with this that's the thing that always stuns me about it it stunned me when i first of all i heard it out of context but of course i got the album then i immediately went back and got all the other ones and listening to it in sequence it's somehow even greater mm-hmm. than when you just take it on its own because on london calling the clash just mysteriously mutated from like a punk band great songs you know, but it's very simple, very you know, very simple musical conceits and very kind of you know rock simple production into the most versatile group of their generation. This isn't punk music. Punk clash no longer are a punk band. It's one of the most amazingly well-produced sets of like was it pop and punk and soul and reggae and rock and lounge and ska and whatever i mean you got basically almost every genre sort of uh you know Brian Eno ambient music here is on this album and they would get to the ambient music on later albums in fact <laughs> um and it's easily one of the finest double albums ever made that's a no brainer i once when i was a kid and i stand by it today it's the blonde on blonde of its generation And I I say that uh, with the full understanding that Blonde on Blonde, uh, you know, maybe Andrew Carell will disagree with me, but this, I think Blonde on Blonde, for all of its merits, has a couple flaws. London Calling has a couple flaws. Yeah, I'm not really a, a huge fan of, like, Lover's Rock, okay? But I just don't care. It doesn't matter. Everything else just stands up, and it never, ever can get knocked down. But the truth, for me, is that the key difference between this album and all the ones that preceded it is actually spiritual, because this is the moment where the Clash are no longer so bored with the USA. All right, this is where they just openly embrace and acknowledge. Is mm-hmm. after first U.S. tour, they openly embrace that fascination with American rock and roll culture, from Elvis Presley all the way on up to poor old Montgomery Clift, and it transforms them. I mean, the the conceits that they have to write song. Who would have ever thought to write a song about Montgomery Clift? <laughs> you know, washed up movie actor addicted to drugs, crashing his car and ruining his pretty face. But man, there you are. The right profile.
3: I see a car smashed at night. Copy applause and within the light. Money's face is broken on a wheel. Is he alive? Can he still feel... Everybody say, see alright? Everybody say, what's he like? Everybody say, you sure look funny. let you for covering If you talk.
1: who would have ever thought to write a song about you know the spanish civil war or you know impending nuclear apocalypse who would have ever come up with these ideas and yet that lyrical vision is there all throughout london calling it's an album that's populated with junkies and gamblers and murderers and rude boys punks and you know outlaw figures that range all the way from card cheats to to cliff himself Mm -hmm. and it's all on the horizon set on the horizon of an impending nuclear war and yet it's all so sympathetic and it's integrated into that basic humanity that underlies The Clash's vision. You know, every, you know, of course they make the the sort of obligatory knock on cocaine snorting executives, which is Coca-Cola. God, I love that song. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so funny. You know, like, you know, if, by the way, I always think one of the funny things about the album is how it, it the way it's so well produced by Guy Stevens is it sounds like a Warner Brothers cartoon, like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. And there's no better example of that than on the beginning of Coca-Cola where you mm-hmm. a cat register, cling, and then Joe Strummer says, elevator going up. And then boop, 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 the little like baseline squib from Simonon <laughs> in the gleaming corridor of the 51st floor. The money can be made if you really want some more. Oh, my God. It's so funny.
3: Elevator going up. In the gleaming corridor of the 51st floor The money can be made if you really want some more Executive decision, a clinical precision Jumping from the windows filled with indecision I get good advice fights from the advertising world Treat me nice, party girl Go catch life, where there isn't any So free, man, free It's the pause that refreshes in the corridors of power so they take
1: a couple of cheap knocks at that but there's underlying it all there's this expression of solidarity with the underclass and the struggle that they have both to gain respectability and maybe also even the fight against it stuff like you know death and glory or rudy can't fail and then you have songs like clampdown which you know what is that? Is that about the rise of neo-fascism in England? Sure, but it's also that 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 second verse where it's you know you grow up and you calm down, start wearing blue and brown. Well, you know you just be, you become a factory worker. You're doing a job and you're also working for the clampdown in your own way. The, just, they've never worked on a more perfect lyrical level, combined with the brilliance and the concision of the music and the lyrics. And God, somebody stop me because I could keep going forever. <laughs> Well, what new can you say? I don't know,
0: but I'll just tell you what I think. And that is just, this is, this is you know, nearly a perfect, perfect album. And even more incredible when you consider that they had no songs. They, they had no songs written when they went in to record this. They, they hadn't written a new song in almost a year, uh, Mick Jones and, and, and Joe Strummer. And then they, they come up with this, all of this, um, and, and the iconic cover. Mentioned too, right? Paul uh, Simonon smashing his bass guitar, slightly out of focus. The uh, the lettering that recalls Elvis Presley's debut. They were going for the the brass ring, so to speak. You, you go, you go. Uh, reference Elvis's first album. Uh, you know, you've got something, and they had it with London Calling. This album, for me, works on so many levels. You know, lyrically, musically the songs work together as a unit, as an album. The songs work individually if you want to split them up. There are so many highlights. Um, I recall one of the first times I heard the album, the, the track that really stood out to me was Rudy Can't Fail. And it might not be my favorite these days, but I'll tell you a few things uh, that I love about it. I love those horns um, and the fact that oh my God. you know, there's like a pop soul and reggae mix. Um, we 've done a lot of a, a lot of bands or at least a number of bands that have had you know reggae influence numbers. It is hard to please me, I will admit with a reggae influence number and the clash uh for the most part in their career do as good of a job as I can explain in in weaving that reggae influence into something that still is very much the band uh and rudy can 't fail is a great great example of that uh yeah okay.
1: That, that dance hall influence on that song? Okay, yes. you know what Rudy Can't Fail makes me think of? And this is a hilarious analogy. It reminds me of the band, um, which is, a, again, maybe that makes no sense. <laughs> but what I think of is I think of, like, on music from Big Pink on, like, The Weight, where they're, like, trading vocals, and mm-hmm. it just seems like a yeah, yeah, communal yeah. thing. Yep. And so, like, on you know, Rudy Can't Fail, you, like, Joe Strummer, it's like he's egging on Mick to sing, like, oh, and then you say, and then Mick comes in, how you get so rude and uh, restless? And it's like, this is recorded in the studio this stuff is all planned right they probably did like 16 takes to make sure that they got the give and take done correctly but it sounds so natural it sounds like they just threw a party and that's the song that (laughs) came out of it it sounds completely unforced and i I don't know how they managed to again go from the sort of sludgy sound of give them enough rope to something that's just so whip sharp and crystal clear and yet you know feels completely spontaneous
0: the
2: rhythm really- on that song is just impeccable. Like yeah. with the horns and in the interplay between the vocals, they it might be the tightest. I, I, you can make an argument for it as maybe the tightest track the the put down in terms of complexity and how well they pulled it off. Yeah, it sounds flawless.
0: two, which I think is, again, one of the great sides of music uh, ever. I mean, Spanish Bombs, which CJ already talked about, is it's just a great, great song. The Right Profile, which Jeff mentioned, again, those huge, rich horns just drive that song. And then the next two, Lost in the Supermarket, is such a fantastic song uh, lyrically, um, th- this, this description of what... You know who who we are and, and and who we're told we are. You know through commercialism. You know lost in the supermarket, um, and a great lead vocal from from Mick Jones in that one. Clampdown. Song is
1: forty years old now. Forty years old, and the theme hasn't aged a day. No, not at all. In fact, it's like it's actually more relevant now. Yeah. I feel like than ever. <laughs> you know, instead of saying lost in the supermarket, you could say you know lost on social media or right. something like that. But it's the same idea. Right. And I'm just, again, I'm just, I'm in awe. I'm in awe of the fact that this stuff doesn't age. And, and Clampdown, which might be my favorite track on the album, Clampdown is just
0: unreal um, in terms of the the arrangement is perfect. It took so much planning to get uh, to, to, to where it is. Um, but but again, so much of the Clash and Joe Stormer's lyrics is, is is about fighting back, right? Or if you're put in a position where you can, you know, give up or fight back, always fight and clampdown is kind of fighting against um uh, uh Not old age, necessarily, but retaining that youthful spirit and your dreams and your your ideals and working against or not working for the establishment, that the clampdown. No man born with a living soul can be working for the clampdown. I mean, that's a line, right? But Um, but I think
1: there are layers to that, too, though, because, you know, as CJ talks about, you know, Strummer's always got these layers because what is that song about? It's about young men, alienated young men. Who have taken that exact position but chosen to fight for the wrong thing mm-hmm. so like what's 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 the line you know let fury have the hour anger can be power you know yes. that you can use it well you can use it for good but you can also use it to go beat up muslims and jews so there's like, a lot of bad ways to use anger. you can use it to march in charlottesville for god's sakes there's a lot of got talk about a song that does not age yeah. that song is like freaky relevant in 2018. <laughs>
0: Death, Death or Glory what a chord progression on Death or Glory and the way that's recorded so dry the, both the instruments and the vocals very very dry recording technique and that coda that everything builds uh, through the tail end of that song just fantastic uh, but later the card sheet snuck up on me through the years that one never stuck out to me until a couple of years ago and now it's one of my favorites um it almost reminds me of like a has a, like a Phil Spector quality to it these big drums horns this wall of guitar coming at you um and 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 this story of a of a car cheat who's been shot and kind of that's a Jones vocal or Jones uh uh lyric song and again Jeff Jeff got at this earlier the Jones vocals or the Jones lyrics versus Strummer's lyrics Jones is always a little more um I don't know uh, personalized or introspective and this is like a character study of this of this card sheet it's a, kind of a classic jones lyric um and then no one's mentioned train in vain which is probably their most pure pop move um such an unbelievably catchy song with those you know go ahead
2: what gets me is they they recorded this just amazing pop song, and they stuck it at the end of their double album. That's how strong this album is. Mm-hmm. That they recorded this song that most other bands would front-load and put out as a single, stuck it at like track 20 or whatever. <laughs>
1: they wanted to give it away to a flexi-disc. It was supposed to be something they were doing for like the New Musical Express or something. Mm-hmm. And they recorded it, and apparently the deal fell through. <laughs> so they just said, alright, we well, <laughs> put it on the album, I guess. And, and they, they couldn't put it on the, the track listing at that point because right, the, the album it. had already been printed, so it just came out as a secret track, and it's their most famous song, practically.
0: Yeah, certainly one of the ones that gets played most often, those triple chords right after every, you know, the verse line, the dum-dum-dum, and the harmonica toward the end that I think Strummer plays, and um, again, it's a a Jones, you know, You Didn't Stand By Me, no, not at all, there's there's heft, uh, one of the more I guess personal songs it's not quite it's not a love song of course but but it has the the, the personal relationship angle to it in the lyrics that's the very last song in the album start to finish very 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 few missteps as Jeff mentioned earlier I could talk about six other songs in this album London Calling is is just one of the most perfect double albums ever produced
1: literally people just stop the podcast if for some Bizarre reason you have not heard London Calling, and yet you're listening to this. Go listen to London Calling and come back. We'll be here when you get back. It's <laughs> it, it's an album that every person who cares even somewhat about music has to know. Um, but CJ, before I before I make a comment about Guy Stevens, do uh, you have anything you want to add?
2: Oh yeah, no, I, I got some songs to go through. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> I mean, we're it. gonna start off just with the with the opening track. It's famous, but it's I think one of like. If London Calling has an iconic album cover, it also has an iconic opening track. Mm-hmm. Um, just the opening sounds of London Calling, it starts out with these kind of and guitars. And then over the top of it, you get this uh, kind of almost Wagnerian bass line. Oh, boom, and it sets the mood for the whole album. It's wildly unlike anything The Clash ever put out before. And you also hear some of the really, really great production on this. There's all sorts of layered guitars in the background that you kind of have to strain to hear, but, you know, you would notice it if they weren't there. It has these very uh, interesting layers in the back. They're doing interesting things musically on this album that they hadn't even attempted before, uh, and London Calling really sets the mood for that. Uh, also, want to I mean, I want to talk a little about All Lost in the Supermarket because that's also one of my favorite tracks. I love – one of the things I think it stands out is this is a very simple song in terms of music. They take a very simple motif uh it's sort of an inverted pedal point they have this little tiny uh, guitar line or melody line and then paul is changing the chords underneath it and it gives it uh, this interesting texture but really all they do is take that little motif and play with the dynamics and bring instruments in and out as the song goes and as they go in the chorus and as they go into some other stuff um it's really a highlight of of how the band could craft a simple thing into something that was really great and how much they had progressed as musicians. Also, the lyrics, I think the the first verse are some of my favorite lyrics on the album. Uh, it was a quote, I wasn't born so much as I fell out is a hilarious <laughs> line. Uh, nobody seemed to notice me. We had a hedge back home in the suburbs over which I never could see. It It really kind of gets the deep weirdness of being a child and not quite understanding the world and feeling uh, lonely and not understanding it. Uh, Flannery O'Connor once said that anyone who survived childhood had enough information to last the rest of his days. (laughs) Um, And I think that's, that's what the lyrics is really getting to is the deep weirdness of childhood.
3: The oh, I- I
2: also want to give a shout out to Guns of Brixton. We haven't talked about Guns of Brixton. Uh, first of all, I don't, it doesn't seem like a bunch of white English dudes should be able to lay down and dub beat that heavy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> is, that, is that the most ominous baseline ever played by a bunch of white? <laughs> what is there? It's the real deal. And
2: Paul and Topper just crushed this track. And it is also, I think, you know, if punk is an attitude, I think this is one of the most punk songs uh, you can make it. And as as for its cred, uh, Jimmy Jimmy Clifton, or Jimmy uh, later covered this song. Yeah,
1: Jimmy, Jimmy Clifton's version is pretty Jimmy good. Jimmy Clifton
2: covered thought. it. He did, which I think is the best compliment you that you could have given the band. <laughs> because
1: they actually cite the harder they come in the song. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Right, this is the harder the they come is like a classic kind of Jamaican uh, rebel robber, you know, movie uh, about you know people I think li- living in Kingston and the Clash were huge fans of it. So like you know, there's that line you know, at the end of the Heart of they come, and Dad, Jimmy Cliff did the soundtrack for it. And so like to have him do that is basically like you know it would be like if, if Tom York came to me and said you know I really like your stuff, we want to cover your song on our next <laughs> album. <laughs> it's like what but yeah the uh oh my god the bass and the the rhythm track on that is the most ridiculous thing and and by the way the the thing about it is that there's all these like weird touches like like the like the jews harp and the weird like coiled springs the almost cartoonish sounds that are played throughout it Mm -hmm. that i don't know they somehow make it sound both exotic and deeply menacing and and of course you know cj referred to those opening lines but he didn't say them i mean it's one of the most badass couplets in the history of all rock music when they kick open your front door how you gonna come with your hands on your head or on the trigger of your gun (laughs) that is (laughs) that is that is really again you know some real naked rebel music
2: a shout out to the clampdown uh because i think it's, it's it's a timeless song uh it's like george orwell it's never going to go out of style for all the wrong reasons <laughs> uh, it's 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 the one of the most stadium rock songs i think they ever wrote you could melt a thousand faces with it um anytime it was it, it might be the hardest rocking song they, they ever wrote it's an instant classic um, also, just some of the weird touches on the album. They do all this stuff that later would get them into a lot of trouble in terms of like musically. Like Wrong and Boyo, they just stop and start the track for no reason. I, the first time I heard Wrong and Boyo, I just kind of did a double take. I was like,
1: what are, you, what are they doing? Did my CD skip? Did I come in like halfway through the end of the last song? No. <laughs>
2: but that's how confident they were on this album. They had this complete control of what they were doing. And later, you know, this is the high point. After this, everything starts to unravel. All the weird sounds that they're experimenting with and all the layers start to go out of control. And their reggae influence starts to go in a weird direction that doesn't really fit with their rock sound. But at this point, at this point, they're at this unbelievable pinnacle of what they could do musically
1: and I think the band themselves have have given a lot of credit for this for somehow enabling them to focus uh, to their producer their producer on this album who was a guy named Guy Stevens he was a guy (laughs) this is his name Guy Stevens famous rock and roll madman uh, producer for Mott the Hoople that's a name that's come up several times here already for good reason and I'm sure that that's the reason they decided he would be the right guy for them But the stories of what what Stevens would do in the studio during uh, the recording of this album have become part of the legend of it, Uh, like on brand new Cadillac. Oh, so they recorded it. The take that you hear on the album, they recorded it It was basically they were doing it just as a warm up in the studio. Mm -hmm. They played it, you know, they gave it their all. And, uh, you know, then they turned around and guy, you know, from the control room says like, you got it. That's a take. That's a take. That's the one. And they were like, guy, we can't use that. We sped up halfway through, you know. We we changed our tempo, and then Guy Stevens' famous response was you all rock speeds up <laughs> and, which is true <laughs> and of course that's why everyone loves that song because halfway through it gets so much faster you normally would be like well you know you should be playing to the right beat here like, who cares man it's brand new Cadillac and then the other one that the other story that I love that that's also gone down on legend is when they were recording death or glory which is one of the great songs on this record one of, one of the great lyrics that Joe Strummer ever wrote you know every cheap hood makes a bargain with the world and ends up up eventually making payments on a sofa or a girl uh, what a, <laughs> what a great line yeah, everyone settles down you know and that's why death of glory all that all that hoorah about that that's just another story uh, and of course then again the the second verse is even better where he says every gimmick hungry job digging gold from rock and roll just grabs the mic to tell you that he'll die before he's sold but i believe in this and it's been tested by research that he who nuns will later join the church <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Joe, man, I take my cap off to you. But even better than the lyrics is the music on that song, which, again, just slamming so hard. And what was Guy Stevens doing? You know, he let the engineer stand the rec- in, in, behind the the board. He comes into the recording studio, and as they're playing, he just starts picking up chairs and <laughs> swinging them around and throwing them at the wall, shattering glass and breaking things in time to the band to get them hyped up, to make them really, really play their asses off, and you can hear it in every tom hit of that. You know, dun 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 dun, dun. dun. Boy, they are—they're playing for their lives. Like I think they're genuinely afraid of you know being clobbered with a with a stool or something like that. It's so powerful. So much to them both in the focus of the production that that he he brought them but also in these weird percussion touches the clash have never been more interesting in terms of things that you think of them as a guitar band as you know, the lyrics boy their rhythm bass was amazing and the, the stuff that topper Hedden gets up to on this album with the addition of all those funny little clinking clanking you know slight little detail things that guy stevens drops in it, 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 again it, it, it this is this is not punk but it's punk in attitude and it is so well thought out it's it's a miracle it's it's the noble savage miracle how did this happen a bunch of crazy people got together and decided to apply themselves and made one of the greatest albums of all time and that that sigh that sigh came because he- was regretting that we have to move on from talking about London Calling and talk about its follow-up. Oh, well. Uh, boy, what, what is there to say about Sandinista to open except to just say, boy, you know, yeah, you know it's probably not a great idea to, to let your new producer just be a 20-pound bag of sentient weed. <laughs> <laughs> also trying
0: to put oh, out man. the equivalent of five albums in the course of 12 months maybe might not have been the best
1: idea either. Yeah, that too. That too. But who wants to open Sandinista? I mean, this is this is by the way, this is a triple out London Calling was a double album, mm-hmm. right? Famously, one of the greatest double albums of all time and wildly successful. So what did The Clash do for an encore? Everybody's declaring them, well, you really are the only band that matters. Well, they say, you know what? We're going to release a triple album. I can only imagine what people must have felt like in the run up to the release of this album. <laughs> wow. There's a new Clash album coming up, the follow up to London Calling. Oh, my God. And It's a triple album. I can't even imagine what great rock and tunes they have up their sleeve now and then this thing lands. <laughs> the way
2: the way I think about it is like if London Calling was this exquisitely curated collection of all the clashes good influences and ideas <laughs> Sandinista was like if you took all the leftovers and threw them in some storage uh, units and then let the dudes from storage wars blind bid, on, <laughs> or blind bid on them and just pulled out random stuff and threw it together Oh no! it is a mess
1: I mean, okay, three albums worth. So three records. Um, I think there may actually technically only be two albums worth of actual songs, and the rest are dub yeah. remixes. Yes. <laughs> or backward uh, songs. I, I don't know how to fully convey the the ridiculous and bloated self-indulgence of this record to listeners who aren't already familiar with it, but I'm going to steal a line. Unfortunately, CJ, I'm going to have to steal your line that in the emails that we did before the show where they said, they take a mediocre song and they immediately follow it up with an even worse dub version <laughs> of the song. Who does that? <laughs> who does that? <laughs> That's one more time followed by one more dub. It's like, oh man, what the hell is going on with this record Uh, you know what I got I'm gonna have to gather my thoughts here Scott yeah it's gonna go first so this is look I I think
0: it's a really bad album and I know there's this revisionist uh, uh, kind of review that says no Sandinista is pretty darn good it might be almost as good as London calling and I I just don't buy that for a second now they got 36 at bats and so um, you know there are a few good moments here there's no doubt about that I you know, Jeff and I were talking via email. Can you make one really solid album out of what actually is on Sandinista? And I, I'm not certain, but you can maybe get close. Um, let's start with the first track, which might be the best track on the whole album, which is The Magnificent Seven. This is an outstanding song. And it's, it's um, you know, it, it's everything happened. And most of this was done in New York City, I believe. Uh, and it, it's it's everything happening in that in, in the New York City scene at this point. In essence, it's all the accolades and attention that Rapture gets from Blondie as being like the first. Oh, it's the first kind of rap rock song. With Magnificent Seven did it six months earlier and better. Um, unbelievable bass line, which is not by uh, uh, Simon. It was uh, by uh, uh, the blockhead's bassist at the time, whose name is, is is escaping me. But he ended up playing on the track. This mix, for as bad as the rest of the album is mixed, and we'll get to that in a second, the mix on The Magnificent Seven sounds really good. It's this real spacious mix, so there's lots of, of area for these you know chimes and these little things that you pick up upon multiple listens. Uh, the Magnificent Seven is a great song. It might be the best song on the album.
3: Wave b- b- to the boss. It's our puppet, it's his luck. But anyway, the lunch bell rings. Think one out, you Bye. What do we have for entertainment? Cops kicking gypsies on the pavement Now the news is left to attention Lunar landing of the dentist's convention. Italian monster shoots a lobster Two food restaurant kicks out of hand Car in the fridge, a fridge in the car production
0: on here Uh, the rest of the album is so difficult to listen to this dense echo filled uh, production songs like uh, uh, Crooked Beat and Rebel Waltz and and something about England man Rebel Waltz could be this nice kind of sweet little song if every snare drum hidden didn't reverberate for the following six seconds. It's just really hard to get through. And I don't think the songs are as good as they had been on the previous albums either. Again, probably a byproduct of trying to crank out the equivalent of five albums in basically a year between London Calling and in San and having no backup before that. They, they had no songs when they went in to record London Calling. So there's a whole stretch here that I think is, uh, like, let's go crazy. If music could talk, that's just, there's just nothing happening there. Um, there's some reggae beats. I don't think it's done very well. The Equalizer the lyrics are, are really off. Um, the highlights here in the Magnificent Seven, yeah. Uh, somebody got murdered is a good song, Uh, real distinctive sound to it, great guitars. Actually, there's a there's a song, there's an instrumental version called The Cool Out, which I think was on a, a B-side, that I almost like better without the lyrics on it, because you can hear all the interesting things that are happening. Kind of a funk, almost a funk-style song with a lot of interesting uh, instrumentation uh, on on the call-up, which is also uh, The Cool Out. Um, Washington Bullets, uh, a little reggae with marimba, which I know Jeff, always a big fan of marimba. Um Shh. And um but you know, outside of that I was trying to count Not when it's used this way. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to count up, but I think maybe there are eight songs of the thirty six that I I would pull off and say, you know, these are fully realized, well produced, good sounding songs and everything else is largely a mess, including side six, which is largely almost entirely dub style remixes of previous songs in the album. Uh that that's a mess in my mind and the whole album is just it's just it's a mess. It's a total mess.
1: I, I literally have lived with this album for twenty years, have listen to it all that time when we came time for us to like do the show and I went back and listened to it again, listened to Sandinista. I, I, I started them on side six and I could not bring myself to finish it. <laughs> I, I was just like, I realized I have no reason to listen to this. I don't need to hear dub versions of bad songs. It's not even a dub version of a good song. It's not like the dub version of uh, you know Armageddon Time, which is out there. It's called Justice Tonight, Kick It Over. Great. Really good. It's the dub version of Junko Partner, which, <laughs> which is a, is a terrible song. It's a terrible song. It's terrible. I don't need to hear the dub version of If Music Can Talk. Guess what? It's on the album. You can hear it. I don't need to hear Something About England played backwards. This is an album that has one track on it that is just another track played backwards with extra dialogue <laughs> over it. And we're supposed to say, like, oh, th- thank you. Thank you for gifting us with Men's Fourth Hill. And then there's, there's career opportunities. They re-record the song from the first album, and they just have a kid singing it. Why? Why? What on earth were they thinking? Why does the last side of this record exist? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's almost like they forgot what albums were supposed to be about this album. <laughs> Sandinista is a Bible of bad decisions, despite the fact that it has good songs on it. And I think, by the way, the, the, the most damning thing I can say about it, I actually have good things to say about Sandinista, but the most damning thing I can say about it, other than the obvious you know, bloat and complete lack of quality control, is that when they go back to the old rock music, moves, like the stuff that you would hear on London Calling, it just sounds a little bit forced and a little bit wan. So a song like Police on My Back, which is pretty good you know certainly when it begins with that opening siren wail Mm -hmm. you're like well this is gonna rock finally we're back in that London calling mode and then it just goes on too long and it doesn't really kind of modulate or evolve in any way and then you just realize that you know if Guy Stevens were here he would have clipped a minute off of this and I wouldn't (laughs) be kind of feeling worn out the way that I am now same thing goes for somebody got murdered which is good Uh, it's it's a bit wimpy (laughs) I think almost is a funny way of putting it I don't I don't know if it's the penny whistle that plays over the beginning of the song or it's it's mixed vocal, but it feels a little wimpy. But like I think the thing about Sandinista that I don't mind and I think is good is is I don't mind them taking these left turns and going into these weird areas. I don't mind them doing a song like something about england which i like and i think maybe the best song on the album um which is you know sort of a very formal ballad uh, kind of a rock ballad and it's kind of the the lyrics the joe stromer lyrics are basically all about sort of the decline of england and the toll that it took on the you know you know the the average man you know like went off to fight for his country came back to find an empire in decline that had forgotten about him uh it's 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 a Bit preachy, but I think it's also pretty powerful too. I I like that stuff. I like the odd stuff like uh, the leader, you know, the people must have something bad. good to read on a Sunday. And that's pretty fun. Um, so I like it when they when they they change their style. I, I'm not angry about Sandinista because I just wanted more London calling. I'm angry about Sandinista because they could have changed what they were doing without, you know, making such a, a flippant hash out of it.
2: Yeah, I so I, I think Paul and Topper kind of do their best to hold it down on this album, but the production and everything going on around them just makes it a mess, like we were talking about. Like, Somebody Got Murdered is, uh, I think, one of the first really songs that drew me in on this album. And it's I think it's 10 tracks in. I have to listen to basically a whole album of songs <laughs> I don't like to get to the first song in this album that I do like. Um I think it's a decent song. Somebody Got Murdered is pretty good. Uh, The production, though, I can't get over this. Like, everything is drenched in reverb. Like, if you listen to Ivan meets G.I. Joe, there's actually a pretty solid groove on that. There's an interesting thing going on um, with a rhythm section and kind of an interesting piano. But then over the top of it, inexplicably, there's arcade sounds through the entire song. Like, the entire song is overlaid with obnoxious arcade bleeps and bloops. I don't get it. Um you get like this in my notes uh, under Let's Go Crazy the track Let's Go Crazy I think I wrote I wrote is this good? I think my brain is broken. <laughs> like this album breaks your brain. <laughs> You you eventually you can't you can't decipher if this is a good song or not cuz everything is just lost in this weird reverb drenched space.
1: For me the um, one that perfectly encapsulates that is Kingston Advice, which could be a good song. There's like a good hard rock kind of London calling like track underneath that. But then Joe Strummer smoked an awful lot of dope and decided it would be a great idea to drench his vocal in this Ridiculous echoed reverb, but makes it impossible to even listen to the tune. I don't get it. Why? Why? Easy.
2: on my back is a pretty good song is decent but it's 19 tracks in you have to go 19 tracks just to get to the first kind of decent clash rocker on this album like that's it's just filled to the brim with this stuff um, I think the call up and lose this skin are pretty decent tracks uh, they're interesting there's some interesting stuff going on in this album you just have to wade through this sea of, of garbage uh, Charlie don't surf I'll give a shout out to Charlie don't surf I, I think "Charlie Don't Surf" is a precursor to uh, "Straight to Hell." One of the best tracks on Combat Rock, you sort of start to hear you sort of start to hear that sound. This is "Charlie Don't Surf," one of the few tracks on the album I feel like where their sound actually comes together and isn't and isn't um, overburdened by their own sort of weird experimentation. They get into a good space and actually pull out a decent song. a nice chunky rock feel but like you said it still <laughs> has its problems I mean by the time I got to the kids version of career opportunities <laughs> I just wanted to throw my computer out the window um, but I think there's a there are some good tracks on here but you really have to put in the time to listen through and try and figure out what the Clash are doing and they work against themselves on, on so many of these tracks there could have been five or, you know, five to ten more good songs on this album if they had pared back and uh, figured out what they were doing. And instead, it's just it's just a dog's breakfast.
1: I mean, again, this is an album full of legendarily bad decisions. Uh, I, I think of Lose This Skin, uh, which anybody who knows the song already is is already cringing. Uh, I think that could have been the best song on Sandinista. Literally, and, and couldn't be different, more different from anything the Clash had done before. Driven by violins, fiddles, bagpipes, really powerful rock track too, underneath it, with with a course, as, as as CJ said, you know, Paul and Top are doing their doing their best to save these people from their worst <laughs> instincts. But and then all of a sudden they decided to hand the vocal off to This other guy named Time and Dog, this this, uh, Scottish singer who warbles, you know, I, I joke about how I've never heard Rush. I imagine this is what Getty Lee sounds like <laughs> when he wakes up in the morning with a frog in his throat. And, and, I, and I want us to play this song on this show. I want us to excerpt this because I want you to hear just how beautiful and how you hear the song when it comes in, the violins just all start trembling and, and you, know, tr- you know trilling with their fiddle comes in and it's just like, wow, this is going to be great. Then you hear you know Mick is playing that little guitar line on the time, but like this is great. The Clash are rocking again. And then all of a sudden, come with me and you're like, oh no, oh no, Clash, what have you done? (laughs) What have you done? That's what Sandinista is to be. It's the What Have You Done album. <laughs> um, the places where it succeeds, though, are the ones where I think they make those left turns. CJ talked about them. I, I won't spend too much time on them. I, I really love the sort of ambient... Um, dubby uh, boy it almost reminds me of, of like sort of 1973 1974 era can songs like charlie don't surf that's a great song and the other one i really like and it should have ended this album they should have you know made this a, a lot fewer tracks and the album should have ended with the street parade the street parade i think is kind of the only time where you know the production the sort of you know smoked out reverb heavy watery echoey production really just works in service to the song i love you know that idea about you know getting lost among the street parade and when when strummer sings that and of course his voice gets very echoey again the reverb is six seconds long as scott says it works it works in the song it works for the conceit that they're trying to sell that's the kind of left turn the clash could have gotten away with A child singing the guns of Brixton, however, is not the left turn that I wanted to hear from the Clash, especially I do have to admit every time I, I laugh when, when she's like, I don't want to sing anymore at the end of it. <laughs> um, it, it's like stuck on the end of one of the songs I can't even remember which one it is it, it, it might be like let's go crazy or something like that um, but yeah you know, th- that, is the, that is the only like you know like stupid moment that still makes me laugh where the girl's like oh guns have fixed and I'm done now I want to go okay that's really <laughs> funny but yeah what a mess
0: well, they clean things up a little bit for the uh, the next effort, which uh, if people just know the Clash from listening to the radio, well, two of the uh, songs, you know, are going to be on Combat Rock in uh, 1982. They uh, they revert back to their original manager. Bernie Rhodes is, is back on board. This was mainly a Joe Strummer move, if I recall correctly. And even by this point, there's some division starting between Strummer and Jones in, in the musical direction of the band. And it would uh, it would manifest itself in combat rock. Mick Jones did an entire mix of this album with kind of longer, dancier uh, lengths. And they almost made combat rock a double album again, right? Yeah. And um, so Mick Jones mixes it and no one wants to use it. They bring in Glenn Johns to remix it, to bring it down to a reasonable a uh, number of songs, and they would cut. They were cutting minutes off some of these songs from the from the Mick Jones mixes. And there's a uh, I don't know if you guys have read Glenn John's uh, uh, book, but there's a uh, he recounts mixing combat rock. And uh, they brought him in, and they they he he finished the the job. And they were all going to meet at 10 a.m. to talk about the mixes that Glenn Johns had done. So they were there, and Joe Sturmer was there, and 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 they talked and they remixed and. Mick Jones didn't show up until, I think, 7 o'clock that night. So, nine hours late. And they play it for him. Glenn Johns plays it for him. And uh, and, and and Jones is silent. And Glenn John says, well, what what do you think? And Mick Jones says, well, um, you know, there's some changes I, I definitely want made to a couple of those songs. And Glenn John says, well, let me tell you. If you were here at 10 o'clock this morning, we would have taken your advice and made some changes. But being this, if you could not be on time, as the rest of us were, uh, no, I'm done. This is the mix. And that's how combat rock came to be. So there's already some strife. But uh, for me, guys, this is a this is an album a story of two halves on the album. Uh, the first half has both of the singles and Know Your Rights and a few other tracks that are really good. I think Combat Rock falls apart pretty badly on the back half, uh, the second side of Combat Rock. It's their best-selling album in the U.S. Uh, again, has two of the songs, two of the best-known songs, and the last gasp of the band as well, because the next one, uh, ooh, well, let's just save that for later.
1: Combat Rock, who wants to start? I'm going to just tell you right now, this album's way better than I remember it being. I went back to it, um, you know, just in the last week or two, in the context of the show and I found myself thinking, well, this is—I'm—I'm I'm really liking a lot of this music in a way that I had never been previously able to appreciate, and I think that some of that has to do with being exposed to, you know, a wider world of music, a uh, wider wider world of sounds. I mentioned Can earlier. It seems like the strangest comparison, but I swear to God, if you go listen to like "Soon" over Babaluma, or "Future Days," or like some of the stuff off of Unlimited Edition, Can did a whole like series of recordings they called their "Ethnological Forgery" series, where they are like you know play these bunch of Germans uh, then they go play and like oh well, let's just do what we think um, Brazilian music sounds like or you know what uh, you know like you know Native American music might sound like. Uh, this is the clash kind of doing something similar to that. You get a lot of very drony jammy, vibes coming off of this record that I think actually serve it well. And I almost wonder if it's Glenn Johns who saved this record mm. because I feel like it's of a piece with Sandinista that, you know, I think CJ when we were talking about this in the run up to the show, said, like, yeah, you gotta go through Sandinista to get a combat rock. And he has a point there that like this is that sort of sound, the sort of interest in a diverse rock world, uh, but a little more disciplined and a little more harnessed and I haven't those those original mick jones mixes of the album are available you can get them on bootleg um But I haven't really listened to them too carefully, and I just wonder if it it sounds a lot more, well, frankly, crap, uh, Sandinista-like crap on the original mixes that it does when you got a pro in sort of smooth out the rougher edges. Obviously, the first half is better than the second half, but I actually don't think the second half falls apart that much. The only thing on this record that I really don't like is, uh, I I just as a rule have to hate any song where Allen Ginsberg makes an (laughs) appearance. It's a hard and fast rule. (laughs) I mean, listen. You know, get the thing about Ghetto Defendant is that it's not a great song in the first place, and then you got Allen Ginsberg doing his pretentious Allen Ginsberg look at me crap on top of it, and i was just like, yeah, of course, of course. Why am I surprised that of all of the New York poets, celebrity look at me types that would find their find their way into a Clash recording session, it's Allen Ginsberg. I'm almost surprised that he didn't insist on taking a five minute long harmonium solo in the middle of it because <laughs> that's that's just what he does, but uh, I I think this album is a lot better than I remembered. The famous songs, I don't even feel like uh, are worth discussing does anybody need to have me explain rock the casbah to them i mean i will actually only say about rock the casbah that that people don't realize that that was written by topper head and all that it. entire song yeah. musically he not only that he played every instrument on that track i think except maybe for the bleepy bloopy space invaders noises that come <laughs> in near the end uh that, that sounds like a joe strummer thing um Joe wrote the lyrics but man that, that guy could write a dance track he, had, he, he knew what he was doing with that uh, but there's some, some, some less well known songs on this record that I actually really like like overpowered by funk you know that's a really good groove Part of
3: the swan- I bumped, bumped out
1: I really like Sean Flynn, which is almost as close to. Uh, a purely ambient instrumental as the clash ever got it's not instrumental there are lyrics on it uh but it it's it's this very weird sort of you know eastern you know southeast asia fusion with you know whatever reggae and dub sounds that they had been exploring for the last several years and of course that all leads you straight to hell which is A song that i actually don't want to to suck up a lot of time on because i know it's a big favorite of cj's but this is a song that when i first heard it i didn't get it when i was young when i was a 17 year old kid i heard straight to hell i was just like uh, i know i'm told that this is a good song but this does nothing for me but i hear it as a 38 year old and i get it it's an amazing song not just lyrically, where it's about the sort of, you know, the Vietnam GI kid experience. Uh, but sonically and musically, it it's unlike almost anything else the Clash would ever do. And I think it's 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 one of their finest achievements.
2: Oh, uh, yeah, I think this is I got this album before I got Sandinista and the original album. So this album has sort of a little bit of a nostalgia factor for me, not as much as London Calling, but it was the album I probably listened to um you know uh second most and i think it's i think it's a good album if you looked at it tr- if you counted up the tracks that were good versus not good you might be tempted to say the album was a failure but it also has some of the best tracks that the clash recorded um it has two of their biggest hits and it has straight to hell which is uh also a standout track I think you know uh know your rights is a fun song it's uh, if you are 16 or 17 and listening to it, it's definitely a jam. <laughs> if you're a little bit more jaded, uh I don't I don't bob my head as much anymore because it's you know the shock is kind of
1: gone. There's there, there's something there's something a little bit kitschy about this is a public service announcement with guitar. Man. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but they do they do interesting things on this album, and you can hear a little bit of the experimentation from Sandinista, like overpowered by funk has a good groove and as you're listening to it it's almost towards the end of the song they start doing really weird interesting things with it and then it fades out they have all this interest interesting stuff going on and uh it's not as much of a kitchen sink kind of thing as sandinista but if you listen to it there's some cool things going on like the end of overpowered by funk um they get into some kind of weird uh ideas and different sounds there i will talk about straight to hell though because i think it's it is the most unique and non-Clash song that The Clash ever recorded. Mm -hmm. It has these, it starts out with, um, if you're my age, uh, how old am I now? 33. (laughs) Um, you remember this, you know, the opening as, uh, the song that MIA sampled for Paper Planes, (laughs) um, which was a great choice, but it has this, this opening. It starts out with this weird sort of, um, otherworldly kind of, dreamy swells of synth and guitar and it has this rhythm that's not a rock rhythm at all there's no rock drumming or bass on this on this track but it has this dreamy otherworldly quality that the class you if you listen to the Clash's debut album you would never in a million years think they would write a song like straight to hell it is far above anything else that they had even considered in their early years and i think it's it shows how far they came as musicians and songwriters and um, I, like just listening to the drums, it's so weird to think about that, that The Clash recorded this song. It doesn't sound like anything else in their catalog. Let
3: me tell you about your blood, bamboo kid. It ain't Coca-Cola, it's rice. Straight to hell, boy. Go straight to hell, boy. Go straight to hell, boy Go straight to hell, boy Oh, papa San, Please take me home Oh, papa San, Everybody, they want to go home So mama son says Well,
2: except for maybe uh, Charlie Don't Surf. Like I said, you can sort of hear the connection mm-hmm. from there. Yeah um but also rock the casbah i mean i'm not going to belabor the point um as you guys mentioned topper pretty much wrote and recorded this whole song but the groove is locked in there every instrument in there fits like a piece of a puzzle yes yes um, yes like if try and listen to it try and listen to the track and figure out which instrument is driving the piece is it the bass is it the piano is it the drums they all work together in this really really tight way and i you know people sort of gave the clash side eye when they started doing um you know funk stuff but this song is both funky and danceable and rocks pretty hard like you could play this for someone who's into rock music and someone who is into dance music and they would both probably like it quite a bit um should i say or should i go is just as long as people like rock and roll they're gonna like that song it's simple and short um and they managed to sound like they're just having a ball with it it sounds really loose like they weren't trying um which is i think a great credit to how good a job they did with the song uh like you said there's uh, some other interesting things on there, like sean flynn um you get some Allen ginsburg uh giving you some poetry i just like I love the phrase "slam dance Cosmopolis. <laughs> uh, do the worm on Necropolis. I think those are just funny. That's and that's,
1: that's where I die. I just am sorry. I can't
2: take slam it. dance Cosmopolis. I mean, that's... It's kind of weird, but, you know, um, like I said, I don't know. You have to... The interesting question about combat rock is can an album be overall sort of a failure and still be good? Uh, I think the answer is yes.
0: I guess I feel about combat Rock the way that you guys described a feeling about the uh, second album, given, given um, enough rope. I just there's not quite enough to lift it above being kind of like, you know, an okay album. Um, rock the Cash Ball, just to, just to emphasize what CJ said, that is exactly what I wanted to say about Rock the Cash Ball, which is the, everything, f- everything fits perfectly. There is an extreme amount of care taken on each part of that song, the the bass, the drum, uh, the piano, uh, you know. There's the I think just all the way through the second verse, um, he's playing different. You know, he's playing different kind of drum um, just during that entire verse. The, the the way, even the electronic sound effects, all of it. Extreme care is taken, and you've heard that song fifty thousand times in your life now, thanks to a classic rock radio. Give it, you know, one more try with some fresh ears, and, and as, as CJ said, listen to. Try to pick out each of those instruments in the song and which one's carry, carrying the melody and how how does it fit in that puzzle It's just it's really a perfectly put together song by a guy who didn't write you know hardly any songs for the for the band. Uh, know Your Rights, I didn't like the first few times that I heard it, but it actually grew on me a little bit, uh, despite, uh, as Jeff mentioned, kind of that, that introduction. But, you know, your three rights and, and kind of the, 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 the twist, you know, it's been suggested this is not enough, that you have three rights. And, of course, oh, you yeah, know, that's
2: that. a great ironic line there. Yes. I mean, I'm doing, the whole song is kind of uh, a little overt, but that last line always gets me. It has yeah. been suggested in some quarters that this is not
3: enough. <laughs> oh, your rights. I'm not
0: Should I stay or should I go when I was reading a bit about it, the one thing I uh, I wanted to to mention uh, that I didn't know you know, what's it about? Is it about, you know, Mick Jones leaving the band because he was upset with Joe Strummer? Uh, is it about Mick Jones leaving his romantic relationship? He was in a relationship with Ellen Foley, and that name might not mean anything to you, but as a uh, as a child whose dad owned Meatloaf's Out Outta Hell album and listened to it and read the liner notes over and over again, I know Ellen Foley uh, was the voice, the female voice on all of those Meatloaf songs from Bad Outta Hell. So, you know, Paradise by the Dashboard light and you took the words right out of my mouth. That's Ellen Foley. And uh, uh, she and, and and Mick Jones were an item uh, back in the day.
1: Uh, my, my old friend John likes to say uh, when we argue about Hitsville UK from, from Sandinista that in its favor it's the best Clash song to feature a person who also sung on Paradise by the Dashboard device. <laughs> 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 Which I, I think is kind of special pleading, but, you know, he, he really likes that song. Yeah. I don't understand why. Um,
0: and then, yeah, I mean, the second side just gets a little rough for me. I, I'm, I'm, I don't like Sean Flynn very much. Um, Adam Tan, you know, maybe the, the, the Allen Ginsberg song doesn't do a lot for me. I, I think the front half is, is clearly the, 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 the half where the best songs are, and I, I don't think it's enough to kind of make up for the mediocrity of the second half when you look at the album overall better than than Sanditista, but i i would prefer their second album over combat rock if you you know made me choose
1: all right so do we now talk about cut the crap or do we just cut the conversation <laughs>
2: you, i want to i want to give one quick shout out if you want to hear uh rock the casbah in a totally different context there's a cover cover of it by a guy named rashid taha who's uh algerian i believe and sings it in arabic it's uh, quite interesting. It's got some like Arabic sort of drums and Middle Eastern really instrumentation in it. It's quite fun.
1: What do we What do we do about the end of the Clash? Um, okay, so short version: uh, the Clash's interpersonal uh, troubles come to a head. Uh, Mick Jones gets fired from the band uh, by the rest of them by Strummer and uh, by Paul Simonon. Uh, head and had become addicted to heroin and had basically ceased to be functional as a drummer, and so they had to let him go. They didn't want to, but they, they, they didn't have an, a choice. So it was basically Strummer and Simonon left, and you know, this is, of course, The Clash's biggest selling album, Combat Rock, and they don't want to quite hang it up yet, but then Mick Jones gets fired, and then they su- suddenly sit up and say to themselves, you know, oh, oh crap, we just fired the guy who wrote most of the music for <laughs> our band. And, uh, boy, I'm going to make a confession yeah. All you fans I, I i'm a, as i said it you know, was a long time hardcore fan of the clash you know you know a true uh you know consumer of all their b-sides their rarities their bootlegs their concert recordings to this day i have never heard a note of cut the crap i simply refused to listen to it i still don't know what it sounds like i have nothing to say yeah. about this except there is a song on the album that is actually called Finger Poppin', which to me is <laughs> so kind of really all you need to know about Cut the Crap. You've got a song called Finger Poppin'. Yeah. Who's got two fingers and put out a really terrible album to wind up the Clash's career? It's this guy. That's Cut the Crap to me, which is nothing. So anybody who's actually put themselves through the trial of listening to it should chime in then. yeah I, I, took I, the, I took the bullet for
0: Jeff here. I, I listened to Cut the Crap to, in advance of the uh, episode. And, and Jeff, you just said, you know, I have no idea what it sounds like. I mean, imagine the worst you could possibly think of, and it's worse than that. I mean, Cut the Crap is... Finger Pop, it, I tweeted it out, it has to be on the very short list of most embarrassing songs ever to be released by a legendary band. Finger Pop, we
1: got to drop a clip in here just so people can
0: hear It's a complete and total embarrassment. It is atrocious. And the, the rest of the album is not very far behind. You know, Strummer, you, mentioned, you know, they put out some ads. They, they found a few guys to play guitar and drums. They didn't even use the drummer. It's, it's all electronic drums, you know, sequenced drums. The fr- I listened to the first track, which is Dictator. I'm like, this is terrible. And the second track, Dirty Punk, is worse. And the drums, this is how the drums are supposed to sound. This is, that's, that, this is the horrible realization. This is how the album is supposed to sound. Um strummer apparently at some point just kind of threw his hands up and left which meant the manager who co-wrote the album and it never you know made music but managed music was in charge of putting together an album and yes it sounds like a band's manager has put together an album there's this group like soccer style chanting on about half the tracks during the choruses we are the clash is just ridiculously awful um it's it's
1: it's it's worse than you think. So maybe you know if you've like you've gotten through 6 albums and you still feel the need to announce to your listeners that yes indeed we are the Clash. You've got some identity crisis issues going on. Well, with I, your pants.
0: I mean I guess it was like a, it was a Pink Floyd situation where they weren't sure, you know, Mick Jones was saying I'm going to go tour as Mick Jones's Clash or you know Jeff Lynn's ELO and so that uh, it may have been written in response to that saying no 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 we're the Clash even though you know, Strummer doesn't even sing the chorus. It's a soccer-style chant chorus. Cut the Crap, again, I can't recommend anyone listen to it unless you're in it like a metal machine music kind of move.
3: <laughs>
2: even know this i gotta be honest i didn't even know this album existed for a long time (laughs) um and i certainly never listened to it after i found out it did exist i most of the people i heard mention it in writing or whatever sort of talked about it like jeff does as sort of one of the like as you know one of the apocryphal books of the bible that got excised from the official canon that no one
1: talks about it's it's you like know, that velvet underground it's like that velvet underground album after Lou Reed left called Squeeze. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, just, it's just Doug Yule playing a bunch of stuff written by the band's manager. I mean, it's actually almost exactly like that. Oh. Come to think of it, so- I, I I listened to
2: about half of it. Um, in my notes, I had it says the opening track is Dog Vomit. Oh. Um, we are the Clash. I found really offensive. A because half of the Clash was gone, <laughs> and. <laughs> and B the worst part is is the song is called we are the clash but it sounds like a really really blatant rip off of the sex pistols mm-hmm. like uh almost 10 years after the fact it sounds bad and it sounds like a really bad rip off of a better sex pistols song uh, the only standout, if people say This is England is good, and I guess it is good relatively. They managed to squeeze
0: only, a good vocal. Only relatively. Only relatively. relatively. <laughs>
2: they, they managed to squeeze a good vocal performance out of Joe Strummer on this track, um, and, 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 as opposed to most of the tracks where he's not singing the choruses on them. So this is the only song in the album that's even really worth listening to. The rest of it is an abomination.
0: I this is weird. I, I, I'm the only person on the show who has listened to all of cut the crap. That is not a badge of honor, but I guess I'll wear it.
2: <laughs> it was a sad end for the clash. Like I said, they sort of lost the, they sort of lost the strand or the idea after, uh, London calling and then started to get it back together during, um, uh, combat rock. But the interpersonal, you know, the band sort of fell apart on a personal level. And after that, you know, without Mick Jones, you, You know, you don't have The Clash. Joe Strummer's great, but there's, you know, Mick Jones was, if not more, at least half of the band, if not more, as far as the...
0: I promise this is the last thing I'll say about the album, because there's no reason to spill more words, but that's the, that's like the worst thing is, Joe Strummer wrote the lyrics for The Clash, mainly. So, if Mick Jones leaves, you would think you would at least have a decent set of lyrics on Cut the Crap, but you don't. You, oh, you know you don't. I mean, again, finger popping as example, you know, 1A, people's exhibit 1A. I mean, the lyrics are, are trash, and the music is worse, the production is awful, and you should avoid Cut the Crap. I I, I listened to it for you.
1: I like. I just literally Googled the lyrics for finger pop. <laughs> please
2: read them please read them
1: okay hold on I, uh, I push them down okay everyone I want you to hear this this here finger of mine is going to point to the beat right on time this finger points in a brand new dance this finger points for a new romance don't talk shop finger pop don't talk shop <laughs> finger pop and, oh my god <laughs> and
0: and that is and that 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 course is done by like this deep like, i i don't even know what to compare it to it's not joe strubber it's but it's like this other voice that comes in like a very me- mechanic uh, uh mechanical sort of voice comes in to do don't don't just let a finger pop it's it's very it's very odd it's very odd
1: It it's so funny. I I'm going to have to listen to this song as we do post production now. I'm going I'm go, I'm going to to break the veil and finally hear <laughs> finger popping. It's almost like could it be any worse than it's been described? I have a feeling that it may well be <laughs> it may well be. Anyways, yeah, it is a sad end. By the way, before we wrap up, you know, the both members of the Clash went on to have uh, both the, the key members uh, uh Strummer and Jones went on to have solo careers. Uh, Strummer with Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros, and uh, Mick Jones with uh, Big Audio Dynamite. And I'm going to confess, I, I'm you know I've heard a couple of from B A D songs, you know, on the radio. They had some success, but I'm really not into either of them. Uh, you know, CJ, do you have any any thoughts on the, any of those stuff before we move into the end?
2: Yeah, Joe Strummer's last album with the Mescaleros um, was. Pretty decent. I liked it a lot when it came out. I listened to it again not too long ago, and it was kind of underwhelmed by it. I thought it was a little bit schmaltzy. Um, he does a cover of Bob Marley's Redemption song that should have never been done. It's just him on acoustic guitar, and it, it, someone should have convinced him not to do that. But um, it has some good little tunes on it. There's a couple rock songs that actually sort of get back uh, some of the, some of the feeling of the clash and some of the tightness that he lost after London calling. Um, there's a, there's a few rock songs on there that I think are actually pretty good. And it it was great to hear Joe Strummer sort of getting his footing back and, and putting out some decent songs, uh, in his later career. That was the last album. I think, I think his last album came, might've come out posthumously or not very long after, if not. Um, but it might be, you might even look it up, uh, Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros. Their last album is uh, uh, sort of a good way to close out Joe Strummer and uh, some of the Clash without having to listen to Cut the Crap.
0: <laughs> ah, then there we go. There, uh, That's the political beats. Look at uh, the Clash with uh, C.J. Saramella, Reason Magazine, Reason.com, or at C.J. Saramella on Twitter. We come to the point of the episode where each of us pick out our Two albums that you should own from our chosen band and five songs you need to hear. And we always allow our guests to go first. So, CJ, the floor is yours. Your albums and, and your five songs, please.
2: All right. Uh, for my two key albums, obviously, you got to go with London Calling. There's no question about it. It's the best album The class Ever put out. It's one of the best albums ever made. Uh, you could make an argument for it as the best rock double album ever, you might get some objections there, uh, but you couldn't make an argument for it. Uh, my second album, if I was doing my personal album, I might be tempted to go with Combat Rock just for nostalgia. Um, but if you are looking for the definitive Clash, you have to go with their debut album as well. Their uh, 1977 classic punk release, self-titled debut. Uh, it has all the snotty British punk you could ask for. It talks about the battle days of London. Uh, it is about police and thieves and all sorts of good things for my five songs. Uh, I think I'm going to go, uh, from their first album, I'll go with career opportunities. Cause I think that's a great example of the early clash and their lyrical themes and, uh, a great punk tune as well. It's uh, fast and aggressive, uh, and gets in and gets out in a short amount of time, which the clash would later have issues with. <laughs> uh, then you get into London Calling. Uh, I had a lot of trouble narrowing this down because there's so many great songs off this album. Um, Spanish Bombs, I mentioned, is my absolute favorite Clash song. I think the the songwriting and what they managed to do with it is incredible uh, for a fairly simplistic song. The lyrics are amazing, uh, and it just sounds great. The guitar line and the melody are fantastic. Guns of Brixton um, is... The best reggae or dub influenced song. This was pretty much a straight up dub song that the Clash ever did. Um, it manages to be extremely punk and also a uh, heavy dub track at the same time. Uh, also throw Rock the Casbah in there. I think it's it's as a it's incredible that the Clash started as a punk band and put out this very funky danceable song i like the song i have it on my running playlist uh it it's been overplayed but if you listen to it it's it's uh, quite an achievement uh, songwriting wise my last one i really had trouble narrowing this down but i think i'm gonna go with the clampdown because i think it is the most anthemic anthemic rock song uh that the clash put out that also ties in lyrically with what they were all about their idea of uh of fighting against uh sort of mediocrity and reactionary politics and not giving up or selling out um and of course there's the uh, added layers of fighting the fascists and you know the jackboots and such i think it sums up a lot of what the clash were about in a very concise and really really listenable song
0: uh, all right, so uh, we're going to have some duplicates here. Uh, nah. my, that's fine. It's fine. That just means that we feel strongly about it. You definitely should hear those songs. Uh, my two albums, The Clash, the uh, the debut album, and London Calling, for all the reasons we talked about previously. Uh, five songs, career opportunities from the first uh, album. Uh, uh, from Give em Enough Rope, Julie's been working on The Drug Squad. I, I like that one quite a bit. Spanish Bombs and Clampdown, which also were both chosen by uh, CJ. I think Clampdown probably, probably is my favorite Clash song, period. And uh, as much as I dislike Sandinista, man, The Magnificent Seven, I think, is a song that you should hear. So that'll be my fifth. And as a bonus, um, it's not a part of the five, but I didn't get a chance to mention this earlier. There was an EP just before London Calling called Cost of Living, and there's a song in there called Capital Radio. Which uh, which starts with this very melodic, very pleasant, like, kinksy riff. And then, of course, goes into a full-tilt Clash attack on London radio because they wouldn't play Clash songs. It is well worth a listen. Capital Radio, just a little bonus there.
1: Uh, Jeff? Well, uh, surprise, surprise. Uh, it's going to be the Clash's debut album in London calling. Uh, for all the reasons that have already been laid out, I don't need to repeat them. These are two albums that every person who... You know, wants to be at least somewhat musically literate, has to own. And you're not going to, you know, own them grudgingly. You're going to treasure them because they're both masterpieces. For my five songs, I decided to do something a little different and specifically choose songs that weren't on those albums. So, like, if I were just going to say, like, what are the five best Clash songs? Well, I mean, come on. It could be five London Calling songs, but I'm not going to choose anything from the first album or from London Calling. Instead, I'll go with other ones. So, my first of, of the Clash songs, five tracks that aren't on those records would be jail guitar doors it's a b-side it's a b-side of complete control from 1977 uh we talked about it it's kind of one of the one of the great you know uh you know clash songs about celebrating you know rebels and uh people who've gotten in trouble with the law uh i i, I love it i love that chorus so much uh second song would be from give Him enough rope with that's safe european home Man, the the humor in that song, sort of also the 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 biting and you know withering social observation that does not spare uh, the band themselves uh, is something that always has made an impression on me. Uh, second from that album would be Julie's been working for the drug squad, which, as we talked about, is just a, a riot. It's just so funny. And the first time you hear the Clash write a song musically and lyrically that will make you laugh as you listen to it you will laugh it is so fun and then the last two songs i'll pick are from sandinista and you know boy you know this is a difficult record as we've explained at great length but i think that there is a lot worth salvaging about something about england I think is The Clash going in a very different, much more formalized route musically, but that works really well for them. And I think there's a lot of pathos and a lot of power to Joe Strummer's lyric on that song. And then finally, the last one is The Street Parade, which is a song on Sandinista, but also I think stands in for what was most successful about the experimentation on combat rock as well. That very dubby sound, very kind of dreamy, floating away uh, music uh, that takes them into a realm that couldn't be further removed from their punk origins, but feels equally as valid for what Strummer and Jones, Simonon, and Hedden were trying to get at. I really love the street parade, and I, I really think it, it, if they had somehow managed to make a single album out of this record and put that one at the end, people would think a lot more kindly about it than they do about the mess that we're currently left with. Uh, but you know what? what? What else can you say about The Clash? This is the man that gave us London Calling.
0: And, and that's enough. I mean, really, that would be enough. Uh, thank w- you. Thank you to our guest today. let talk about The Clash. He is CJ Ceremella, criminal justice reporter for Reason Magazine. Follow him on Twitter, at CJ Ceremella. Find his stories at Reason.com. CJ, thank you so much for joining us on Political Beats.
2: It was my pleasure, guys. Stay light, stay free.
0: <laughs> uh, Jeff, find Jeff Blair on Twitter at EsotericCD. Hey, happy, uh, happy uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, our last episode of 2018. Happy holidays, my friend, and happy holidays to all of our listeners. We will be back in the new year. Uh, Again, Jeff, at Esoteric City on Twitter. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. The show's on Twitter at Political underscore Beats. Join the conversation there. Also, please subscribe to our feed for new episodes. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, NationalReview.com is where to find them. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.